This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is part three of our top 100 matches of 2016 special. I am Quentin Moody and Brock. I guarantee this time that we're going to die. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we didn't think we were going to have to go to three parts, uh, but I think this is what's going to do us in. Okay, so no messing around. We had some <laughs> recording issues last time that prevented us from going the full 50 to 1. Yep. But there's no stopping here. Brock, are you ready? I am ready. All right, 25, you go first. All right, my number 25 is uh, a match that actually got switched around on my list uh, just a couple hours ago, but it's still a match that I appreciate quite a bot, uh, quite a bit. It's Heroes Eventually Die versus Catchpoint, which is Drew Gulak and Tracy Williams from Evolve 58. Uh, this is interesting because I remember the issue with this is that this one on after Will Ospreay versus Zack Sabre Jr. kind of mm-hmm. stole the show that stole the show that weekend. So for for some people it did, but yes, I, mean, I guess I mean I guess the thing is that the crowd got burnt out and then oh um, yeah totally yeah and they got really no reaction here for as long as they went. So I mean, you, mm-hmm. you you can go ahead though. Okay, well I mean, uh, in a lot of ways this was like what I wanted Heroes Eventually Die versus Sammy Callahan and Zack Sabre Jr. to be, uh, which is like stiff mean strikes and grappling oriented um four very different competitors each with their own styles and personalities and that's what we get here and it's not it's not perfect for a variety of reasons but i really enjoy it it's it's smart and it's procedural it unfolds naturally and realistically as these guys like act and interact and react with each other um you're completely right that it's hurt by a bad crowd that was already um really burnt out by this point in the day it's also hurt by the fact that there's not like a a clear babyface team here, and it does go very long, like most evolved tag team main events do. But outside of all that, like it's four guys I like a lot doing a whole lot of stuff that I like, so I couldn't not include it here. Yeah, I think this would probably be um, a match that benefits would that would uh, that would benefit from rewatching in context and without that added. Because uh, I know watching it um, the even just a stream that mm-hmm. I was kind of burnt out by the time we got to the main event. So, a lot of people probably gave it a not a fair chance. So, it'd totally. probably be a thing where people should revisit it at some point. Yeah, and that's... Uh, I didn't get to see this live because I was in York, Pennsylvania, stuck in a hotel. Uh, and it was really shitty Wi-Fi and we couldn't watch anything. Um, uh, I didn't get to see this live. I watched it probably six weeks after it happened and I loved it. But then I rewatched it today for our purposes here. And I was like, oh, I didn't love this quite so much. But I agree with you that I, th- I think it's been overlooked. And if people revisited it, they'd probably have a better opinion. Just for reference sakes, like where was this before you re- rewatched it? Uh, previously, it was at number 15. All right. All right. That's, yeah, that's a good deal um, lower. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. My number 25 is Shuji Ishikawa versus Dashuku Dino from DDT. 
oh, I didn't get to see Shuji's title defenses, sadly. It would really bum me out that I didn't get to catch up with the latter half of the year in DDT. So some people would probably prefer the Kazusaka-Higuchi title defense. Yeah. yeah. But this match is way more impressive to me for the fact that this is like the perfect uh, blending of styles mm-hmm. between Shuji, who's a complete ass kicker, stiff as hell, will knock <laughs> you out, headbutts and knees and all that stuff, versus mm-hmm. Nashoku Dino, who's essentially an, a comedy character, an exotico character. So they bring this together, and the thing about this is that neither guy sacrifices what makes them great, what makes them who they are. Nashoku Dino doesn't stop doing comedy. He doesn't stop doing spots, you know, based around his dick. He works it into being serious, which Mm -hmm. is odd to say. Like, he works these spots into being something credible in a way that could actually put away Shuji. And Shuji actually sells it. He doesn't (laughs) sell it like he's um, in a comedy match. It's not stooge bumping. He sells it like it's a serious threat. And for the two guys in it, it's surprisingly stiff. Mm. Like, Dino, I think, um, bust open Shuji's mouth, or Shuji bust open Dino's mouth. Like, it was, a uh, there was some accidental blood going on. And I think it was, like, just, like, a really well-done match between two guys who were on drastically different ends of the spectrum, mm. but coming together to make something completely unique and special. DDT is really good at stuff like that. Like, I remember, um about five years ago, almost to the day, there was a really incredible Dick Togo and Antonio Honda match that was sort of similar to something like this. Yeah, this... The DDT is... You mentioned it, you said it, you said it yourself, but they have this uncanny ability to put sort of comedy characters in there of serious wrestlers, mm-hmm. and they get fantastic results, which is a... You know, Kenny Omega could go from being this guy wrestling a little girl to wrestling in open weight title defenses and the same mm-hmm. thing with Kota Ibushi. And I don't know, DDT is one of those promotions that I think when we look back on them in a few years that they found variety in yeah. a way that a lot of promotions never did. And I think it's important that they stuck around, whereas other promotions that did this, like, say, Hustle, weren't able to keep their doors open for 18 or 19 years now. Yeah, and they'll be... Uh, DDT is going to be running uh, um, Saitama Super Arena in March. It's my and, favorite place. <laughs> and they'll their own their goal is to only keep growing bigger and bigger. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, you got to respect the ambition of DDT. Totally. Uh, was this uh, the highest ranked Shuji Shikamo match you have on here? No, I have another one okay. coming up. Okay, so I'll, I'll, t- I'll bring something up later when we talk about that, then. All right, so what's your 24? Well, number 24 is uh, also a match that sort of got... Uh, bumped higher uh it was dragon lee versus kamayatachi from new japan's fantastica mania 2016 day six all right i'm trying to look i have that at 36 oh did you i don't remember you bringing that up before that's interesting um why'd you have it at 36 um mainly because i like the their other match more and i wanted to have like oh a, that's right yes you know i wanted to keep like some space between them so yeah <laughs> okay uh i I do agree that this isn't quite as great as other matches that they've had, though I think which ones are the best differs between the two of us. But, like, I love this for how different it is compared to those matches. It's yeah. more, like, Japanese junior heavyweight-based than actually, like, lucha-based. And, like, it's in obvious ways, like, this is a one-fall versus a two-out-of-three-falls match, but uh, it, it's more subtle than that, too. And there's a lot more psychology to it, even though <laughs> these guys are still doing their crazy match. But 
Uh, I like it a lot. And then the thing about this that kind of takes it over the top, and initially I probably um, thought this was going to be higher for me. Uh-huh. But the thing about it is that this is a great moment, too, because yes. Kamatachi um, returned to New Japan the night before attacking mm-hmm. Dragon Lee, mm-hmm. and he gets a title match in his first match in the company in, like, two years. Mm-hmm. He finally beats Dragon Lee for the title, and he does mm-hmm. it in Kurokan Hall. Like, mm-hmm. that's a tremendous moment. He, he, uh, he kicks out of the backdrop driver for the very first time, which is, like, they've they've done that sort of storytelling in their matches, and I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, like, you know, if you watch the entire Dragon Lee vs. Kamatachi feud, there's certain things that for, the, that for a long time weren't kicked out of, uh-huh. and they kept building and building off of it. And this is one where Dragon Lee had, um, he hadn't kicked out of the um, pop-up Canadian Destroyer yet, I don't yep. think. And that's what Kamatachi finished him off with in this match. And then that kind of plays off of what happens into their um, March um, 4th encounter that I have mm-hmm. higher on my list. But this is a great match, though. This was uh, also like kind of a cool snapshot in time in which uh, I didn't watch it live, but I heard that Kamei Itachi had returned the night before this, and it got me really excited. So I watched every single one of their matches in succession uh, <laughs> hours before this show to prepare for this match. And then I watched this match, and it was like... This was fun to watch, like, six matches all in a row with the same guys. It was it was very enjoyable stuff, and I, I don't think I've ever done that before. Coming up in, like, two months is going to be, like, the anniversary of Supreme Saiyan Lucha. And uh-huh. in the first episode was about the Dragon Lee vs. Kamatachi feud. That's cool. And what, and what spawned it is that they, uh, well, the entire feud, I guess, like, having the, the match in New Japan and having the match in, uh, in CMLL in March... So it's going to be a, I might try to do an anniversary show where we talk about them again on a, when they have, when they have their match a new beginning. I don't know. That'd be cool. Yeah, maybe. I'll, this is a very uh, instrumental feud mm. to, uh, I guess, like people who weren't paying attention to Lucha before. Mm, I think, totally. I think got turned on to Lucha by these guys. And it's because yeah. they bring something totally different than what's been going on at CMLL for the last few years. And it, I think it does help that one of the guys is a New Japan guy. Like, that that little bit of, like, a, a backdoor into Lucha via this big promotion in Japan is an important factor. Yeah, definitely. So, my number 24 is Delta versus Galactar ah. from Monterey on November 26th. Now, I had this at, like, 97 or something, and it was something that you had recommended to me. Uh, and I watched, like, I just added to a list to get around to in preparation for this list. <laughs> and it sort of suffered from that, as well as the fact that there was another Lucha de Apuestas match this year that was really incredible that we have on our lists. Um, and so, like, I really enjoy this as, like, a bit of just really awesome Lucha mask versus mask match antics. But, like, I don't think it blew me away as much as it did you. So why don't you tell me about it? I think the thing about this is that they also... Um... Did you watch any Delta and Galactar's matches? No, before I've this? never seen these two guys before. That also hurt. All right, so these two actually had a really good feud going on before the Lucha de Apuestas match. They had a bull rope match, they had other matches, and they were all kind of violent and not bloody, but very uh, one-sided beatdowns with the face getting revenge in the end. And Okay. And I really enjoyed the build-up here. And I think the thing is that Galactar is such a tremendous Rudo he is going after Delta, like, venomously, and Delta is very good in the second fall when he's starting to get all his offense in. I think that's probably one of the better 
second fall performances I saw all year in mm-hmm. 2016. What us over this out, though, and that we always talk about moments of symbolism and all this, is that when we get to the third fall, Galactar, as Aruto would, he grabs the ropes when he has a Delta pinned, and the ref counts the three count, and the place erupts. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those moments where you realize how much people still buy into wrestling in the internet age. Ah, uh, yeah. Where the, this crowd of Monterey is legitimately about to riot because this bad guy won by cheating. Yeah. They swarm the ring. They surround the ring. They're all pointing <laughs> to and, you know, telling the ref that he was cheating. He had his hand uh-huh. on the ropes. Like, that's surreal that people still get that kind of, that riled up about wrestling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's special to me. And, you know, I thought that was really great. And then they... So that's, like, a really tremendous false finish. They restart mm. the match. Delta wins. And post-match, Galactar unmasks. And he proposes to his girlfriend afterwards. Like... It's so funny. <laughs> dude, like, this is the best. <laughs> it's... I'm glad you brought up the, the, the false finish thing. Because the first um i've talked about my history with backyard wrestling on these sorts of things before but uh the first backyard wrestling uh quote-unquote super show i ever went to was main evented by a match that ended with this sort of a finish with 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 someone holding onto the ropes and the referee didn't notice and we got so fucking pissed about it because it was like back at wrestling even more so than indie wrestling is about like just doing stupid like high spot matches and to have something end like with such a, uh, <laughs> such a screwy finish was such incredible heel work that like it, it worked all of us. And I'm, and I'm glad that like somewhere in the world, that sort of finish can still have such an impact on people. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing where it wouldn't happen anywhere else besides Mexico. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, you get like, um, I, I brought up a uh, triple H versus, um, uh, Dean Ambrose earlier, and I think there was something of a similar false finish there, but you're right that Mexico is basically the only place you can do this regularly. And other than that, like, you know, obviously that's a big key in what I think made the match so special, but the mm-hmm. work itself was really fantastic. They had great yeah. controls before that. These two, especially Delta, is a fantastic worker when it comes to upping the pace. Like I said, his, second, his work in the second fall, doing Topes to the outside, mm-hmm. his, uh, work on the ropes, doing, like, rope walking and kicking yeah. um, He He's a really great guy that I want to see more of in 2017, but for the fact that they were able to get that kind of genuine emotion from a crowd, uh-huh. it's kind of unheard of in the realms of the way they did it. And I respect that a lot, so I had to be a, had to get a high spot on my list. It, it's, fu- it's, like, there's nothing so fun as, like, losing yourself into good professional wrestling and and i'm so glad that there's a country out there where people do that more easily than they do everywhere else all right so what's your 23 23 is a match that got uh ranked a little bit higher or as in like lower on the list uh than it had originally it was um a big old 10-man tag team match that saw shima gama don fuji masaki mochizuki and dragon kid face off against benke hyo watanabe shun skywalker katsumi takashima and yuki yoshioka from dragon gate's fantastic gate i have this higher you have this higher oh where (laughs) i want to talk about it but we're gonna talk about it later (laughs) it's a fun match (laughs) all right so Here's a match that I know you don't have on your list. It's Kazuki okay. Okada versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from the G1 Climax. Definitely don't have this. I no. don't even... 
I don't even remember if I watched it, honestly. <laughs> the thing about this match is that uh, some people would probably prefer the Wrestle Kingdom 11, I mean, 10 match. This is, uh-huh. uh, that was probably the more epic and the conclusion to their feud in a way. Well, the first chapter of their feud. Oh God, don't tell me there's more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing here is that I think uh, going in, they did something that a lot of people weren't maybe fully thinking they would do, and that was go to a time limit draw. Mm. Well, I mean, it wasn't... I don't know, maybe I'm misremembering, but I think their previous G1 matches did that too. They had one previous G1 match in 20... Uh... It was like early, like 2012, 2013. Yeah, it was like 2013 maybe. Okay, yeah. And they had a G1 match there and they went to a draw, but... Okay. That wasn't deciding who was going to the finals. Mm, sure, yes. This was a different situation. Yeah, so... This is, you know, it's not for the IWGP heavyweight title, but there's still high stakes here because the winner goes to the G1. Totally. And these two have a Tanahashi versus Okada match. And the way I mean that is, if you didn't like their previous matches, you're probably not going to like this. Mm. But for someone that likes their style, the way they work, and the way they build drama towards the end, I like this. And I think they actually took it to an even greater level than they did on Wrestle Kingdom 10. Okay. Where they're frantically trying to put each other away so they don't go to a time limit draw. And the best thing about it is that Tanahashi has a high fly flow with about like 10 seconds left. And the clock is like counting down. And instead of like having a thing where Okada is pinned and Tanahashi gets like the visual victory even though the time goes out, uh-huh. Okada kicks out. Oh. So, so it still gives that shred of, uh, you know. Well, Tanahashi didn't really beat the guy, so... Totally. It's proven that these guys, even though Okada won, that they're still kind of on equal ground. Yeah. The ace is still the ace, and it's going to be the ace forever. Yeah. So, it's a good way, I think... They continued their feud, but without, uh... I guess doing it in a way where it felt like it was inevitable that they get a rematch. Like, with the draw, you don't know when their next match is coming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good way to do it. Like, you know, who knows? They might have a rematch at this year's G1. They might do it, you know, two Wrestle Kingdoms from now. But they have this draw that happened in their back pocket because the last time they faced, it was not conclusive. Did this, uh, didn't this get five stars from Big Dave? Um, I think, I think it did. Yeah. And I remember it being one of the, like, less talked about five star matches of late. Because, well, well, the happenings of the next two nights. Mm, sure, totally. It was totally outshined. Yeah. And maybe I, it's, maybe yeah. it's I don't know, the, the dilution of what five-star means. <laughs> maybe, but we can talk about that when I get to those two matches, but... Mm-hmm, okay. What's your 22? My, uh, I don't know about you, Quentin, but I'm feeling this number 22. It's uh, <laughs> Zack Sabre Jr. versus Fred Yehi from Evolve 71. All right, I like this a lot, but I didn't think it was mm. like um like super great. So you have to tell me, I guess, what made it like special. Well, uh, I think Zach is at his best when he's facing technical wrestlers who are real different from him. And Yehi, of course, is maybe a completely unique character in wrestling. He's so different. He's so fresh. He's so unorthodox. He's able to um he's able to take these elements that individually are sort of goofy, like his gear, his facials, the way he moves around the ring in general. And he combines them into this total package that is like incredibly comp- 
compelling and endearing on top of being goofy and funny. And he steps it up here with um <laughs> with his with his famous oh god selling, which is <laughs> which is like the cost for a lot of laughs, but totally works as believable empathetic selling. And uh, he's got a lot to sell here because he and Zach go the fuck at it on the mat and just beat each other up with some really tight, gruesome opportunistic technical wrestling and uh i i really love it it's shorter i mean it's not necessarily short it's still 20 minutes but it feels like shorter than that it's not built like a lot of long evolve matches are um i I just think like in trying to do less these guys accomplished more and i really appreciate it what i will say is that i think this was way better than the tracy williams zach saber jr match that happened uh the night before i don't think i saw it but i heard that a lot yeah yeah and that's because in that match, it felt like they were doing way too much and going all over the place with, like, no real structure. Mm-hmm. This one, like you said, it was more straightforward. And the thing about the way they were straightforward is that Fred is so different. Mm-hmm. Is that even when they're doing something simple, Fred makes it feel like it's a um, unique thing that's going on. Very much so. He's He's really something special. Like, I hope he blows up big this year in 2017. He's certainly a guy that... uh in a realm where people feel like uh, wrestling is so samey. Definitely, yeah. He's a guy that has a has his own distinct style that I, mm. I mean, I'm not sure if anyone could actually replicate as well as yeah. he does. Yeah, it's crazy. Alright, so my number 22 is from a feud that you had a match from earlier on your list. Okay. But it's Sasha Banks versus Charlotte from Hell in a Cell. I don't have this one. I actually have, um, I don't know. You tell me about it. Well, which match of theirs did you have on your list? I had the first Raw match from uh, July the 25th. Right. So that was the um, first Raw after the brand split, I think. Uh Uh-huh. It's where Sasha first won the belt. Right. So the thing about this is that uh, this is full of WWE tropes. Definitely. It has the... Stretcher job has a baby face fighting off with a stretcher. It has the baby face losing in their hometown. <laughs> it has, you know, weapons being used and announce tables being broken. It's WWE, you know, tropes. But I feel like they're done right here. I feel like they made the tropes feel different and not feel like it was soaking. I feel like they went out there and had a match that felt like it was truly, uh, not historical, but it did feel special in a way. Sure. Where, you know, usually I would have a problem with the babyface losing in their hometown, but the way Sasha sold and the way Charlotte was just like this commanding heel, mm. I thought was mm. the right call. And man, we talk about how great Sasha was as a heel in NXT, and I think, you know, we've kind of undersold how good she is as a babyface, at least to some extent, because sure. we, we yearn for her as a heel again. Sure. But I thought she was fantastic here as the face in peril. She was selling her back to death. Um, but Charlotte, man. Charlotte put on the performance <laughs> yeah. of a lifetime here. I, I definitely do agree that Charlotte, like, really impressed me in that match. And I've, I think I've liked Charlotte more than a lot of people. Um, but I've... I really think she 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 excelled in a match that I found to be like plotting and boring, but she was a highlight in in this one. Yeah, she went from this um, 
I guess, like, desperate and ruthless heel at the beginning. Like, she didn't want to be... If you look at her facial expressions when the cell's coming down, mm-hmm. she, like, visibly looks shook. She is scared. She does not <laughs> want to be in here. So she attacks her and powerbomb Sasha on the outside. Yeah. And then she's all cocky and, you know, give me my championship and yeah. all that stuff. And then when Sasha gets off the stretcher and essentially comes back comes back to, um, from the dead, Charlotte is even more scared. She is running away from her. Uh-huh. And then when we get towards the end, Charlotte, you know, isn't scared anymore. She's more vicious and ruthless. And she is going to destroy Sasha. Totally. And I really like the finish because, like I said, Sasha's back had been worked on playing off real life circumstances again. And Charlotte just kind of like throws her on the table and it looks brutal as shit. <laughs> it's she, that the table doesn't break, right? Yeah. She throws her on yeah. it and then she just rolls off. Yeah. And then it goes straight <laughs> to it. And then it goes straight to a natural selection. Yeah. It's kind of, I don't know. I find it to be sometimes, sometimes I really appreciate, um, flash finishes like in the, Heroes eventually die versus catch point match earlier that had a really sudden flash finish that I enjoyed. Um, but here, I don't, I don't know what it was about it. Maybe it was just the rest of the match, but here I didn't appreciate it as much. I don't know. Cause it felt like they could have gone all the way with the hero overcomes and wins in their hometown story. Uh-huh. But I like the idea of, you know, Sasha just being so hurt and so totally. banged up that she just didn't have it in her at all. You know, she was yeah. trying to get revenge by power bombing Charlotte through a table and her back gave out. Mm-hmm. She couldn't do it. She just didn't have any more left in the tank. And then Charlotte just ends her. There's no near falls. There's no, you know, finish your spam. It's just, she's done. And to some level, I appreciate that a lot because that doesn't happen quite often in wrestling where mm-hmm. something just, you know, bang and it ends before that. There's like a whole bunch of build and build and build and build and sometimes there's too much build and this one it felt like they cut it off right before they did any of that um finisher trading that wwe is so known for totally so that's my 22 so what's your 21 uh my 21 is a match that got a ton of praise from uh friend of the pod tj hawk it's jonathan gresham versus leo rush from roh's reloaded tour I like this match a lot, but I didn't. Oh, really? Yeah, I, like I, this, yeah, I, I wasn't I like sure that match. anyone like watched it besides TJ and me. <laughs> no, I watched it because uh, you know I love both of these guys, so I didn't okay. see it, but I didn't have it on my one hundred. Um, I, I think TJ and I, I don't know, just really got caught up in the moment with something like this, and I'm not sure that it necessarily translated well to other people. But in a lot of ways, this is like, this is the kind of stuff that I think high-flying, fast-paced wrestling should be, as opposed to, say, the Ricochets versus Will Ospreys of the world. Like, and, it, and it's not like it... Tra- it's not like it... Um, it's not like it sacrifices any, like, exhilaration or crispness or speed or spottiness or anything. It's just, like, two performers who give better performances as opposed to just focusing, focusing on spots. Like, Gresham here is... Um, he comes across as like the best wrestler in the world. He's cocky. He's braggadocious in front of like this hometown crowd of his. He's completely capable of backing all of that up, uh, but he takes his time with it. He's he's kind of slow. He's kind of arrogant with it, and it doesn't um, it doesn't become boring for that reason. And it doesn't 
ever come across it doesn't ever come across like he's lazy in the way that I would complain about that sort of thing with say Zack Saber Jr. Um, it feels like he's in control but he's just like letting up on the gas enough to allow Leo Rush to turn things around on him and eventually get the win. Yeah, and these two have some really great chemistry, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that it's not like a few for the TV title or something. Because imagine, yeah. like, imagine like ROH is giving these guys like 15 <sighs> minutes every week to go yeah. and tear it up. Because uh, it's a shame that Gresham isn't a big deal anywhere. Because yeah. he seems to have chemistry with like all these top guys that work in these different places. It's almost like he's a great wrestler or something. <laughs> It's almost like he's one of the best in the world. Almost. Yeah. Like they do they do a spot here based around a crossface where he's I mean he's got Leo Rush's arm trapped in a crossface and Leo's trying to grab the ropes with his other hand and Gresham grabs it and pulls it back and they, they fight over it and it sort of looks like kinda hammy and hokey and in another match I'd complain about that. But here there's there's something about their performance, each of them, and, and the sort of effort and heart that they put into it that it's like legitimately captivating and it's and it's little moments like that that make a match like this go totally over the top for me Alex Shelley was on commentary for this right yes he totally totally sold these so so hard yeah he was he was great on commentary yeah that was another part of this where usually on an ROH house show when the commentary is just kind of there but uh-huh. Alex Shelley is trying his hardest to make to make the fans yeah. know that these guys are important. These guys are great. Sometimes uh, I think Stokely's another guy who used to do it. Uh, sometimes guys like really go out of their way to make the promotion and its wrestlers come across great. All right. So, I mean, I'm glad to show up on your list because it's a great match that I wasn't sure anyone besides TJ Hawk viewed that highly. So. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um. So my number twenty one is Kenny Omega versus Hiroki Goto from the G One Finals. Ah, uh, okay. You uh, you brought this up earlier and said you had a lot to say about it, and I'm not sure what it's going to be. So why don't you go ahead and take it? On the surface, I can see people just have like kind of viewing this as like, as like a typical New Japan big bomb throwing fest. Mm-hmm. But I think they did way more than that. And for me, I think it comes down to the fact that uh, when they and the way they got Goto to this point. He kind of snuck in here. You know, mm-hmm. Okada and Tanahashi go to a draw. So, by default, Haruki Goto just kind of ekes his way into the finals. Yeah. And then the fact that Kenny Omega is is even in the finals to begin with was a weird thing because no one expected this. So, you got this mm-hmm. weird final that no one expected and it's the most unpredictable match that New Japan had had in years. Totally. <laughs> like at Like, remember, you know... In the moment, after Omega versus Naito, when we had the confirmed final, it's just like, what the fuck is going to happen here? Like, you're just looking at this on paper, and you don't know what they're going to do. Well, I think, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it was just my, my um, personal belief that they never do anything with Goto ever again, but like, I thought, and it's easy to say in hindsight that this is what I thought, but I thought that Omega was going to win, but you were, um, you were kind of alluding to something greater with Goto, I think. Yeah, it's because that I think Goto served a purpose here where you don't know if they were actually going to pull the trigger here. And initially uh-huh. I thought that Goto was going to win and that he lose the briefcase to like Tanahashi or Naito or something. Ah, yes, yes, okay. So, because I had zero faith that they'd actually pull the trigger on a North American winning the G1. Totally. Because, again, that's unheard of and 
you just don't know if they ever actually would do something like that. Yeah. But as far as as far as like you know, I think it, having more to it than just being a typical bomb throwing fest, they play off of stuff that happened the night before. For instance, Kenny Omega the entire night time after selling his leg. Mm-hmm. So early on, they kind of established that Kenny Omega's leg is still hurt, and they don't fully make it the story of the match, but they do just enough to acknowledge that it's still there. Sure. Which is good enough for me. I don't need it to be a continuation of a match that happened last <laughs> night. Sure, sure, sure. And one thing that Kenny Omega did during this match that I thought was really impressive is that in the Naito match, he faked like he was going to powerbomb Naito on the apron, but powerbombed him on the table. In the Goto match, he faked like he was going to powerbomb Goto on the table, but powerbombed him on the apron. Oh, a little bit of misdirection. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's like little stuff that I don't think anyone else would really care about. Mm -hmm. But if you just, you know... Because it's kind of an inconsequential spot. It's just a totally. thing that happens. But it does play off of last night's events. And it doesn't, you know, go all overboard by making it the same story. It does just enough and gives you little nods. Mm-hmm. And when they... I know, like, the criticism is that they kind of went into the bomb throwing a little too early. My response is, well, you know, my, maybe it might be kind of a cop-out, but it's the G1 Finals. If there is any time to just, like, throw bombs or something... Sure. I think the G1 Finals is a big deal here, especially with both guys' as, um, paths to get here. And, well, I think the action here is really great, and they do some stuff like Kenny Omega kicking out of the Shoten Kai, which was like, uh... I thought Ogoto had had that match one when he did it, watching it mm-hmm. live. But Kenny Omega kicks out. But then the thing that happens, and we've already talked a bunch about, a bunch about symbolism in wrestling, and... This had one of the best uses of symbolism I can ever recall in wrestling, if not the very best. Okay. I'm not sure what you're referring to. I don't remember a lot about this. Because in the closing, well, not even just the closing stretch. First off, Kenny Omega does Kota Bushi's moves. He mm. does the sit-out-last-ride powerbomb, and then he does the Phoenix Splash, or okay. goes for a Phoenix Splash. You know, nods to his old tag partner, Kota Ibushi. And then... When we get to the real closing stretch, Kenny Omega hits a bloody Sunday. Mm, then he yes. hits a Styles Clash. Go to consider the Styles Clash. But then Kenny Omega lifts him up and hits him with the one winged angel. Yeah. And it's something it's a nod it's a nod to the lineage of Bullet Club leaders. It's a nod to Prince Devitt and AJ Styles. And it's interesting because before Devitt left, people thought that he would become the biggest Gaijin star. Like, he was probably going to win a G1 if he stayed. AJ Styles, you don't know what could have happened if he stayed. But what we do have is Kenny Omega, and that now you're going all the way with this guy, and you're putting him on this pedestal where he is better than these guys. He is on another tier. You're making mm-hmm. him seem like what he does is even, is even more monumental. And um, I don't know. I like that kind of stuff where they could have just, you know, had Omega win outright. Mm. But I think going through the lineage in, you know, chronological order is uh, something I really enjoyed. And for him to get the win with his own move, too, is something that uh, really solidified the fact that Kenny Omega is a real player in uh, New Japan. I thought they did a great job here, but that uh, finish (laughs) is what blew me away. And it still blows me away, you know, thinking about it. (laughs) I remember thinking that I found it to be a little bit goofy, but to be fair, um, that sort of shit happens in Chikara, and I eat it up. 
so I, I guess it's just different structures for certain people. And um, like I'm, I'm certainly a person who sometimes uh, has a mindset about what a match is going to be like before it happens, and I sort of ruin it for myself before uh, before I even watch it. So I, I, I succumb to that sometimes, and maybe it happened here, but I don't know. It didn't do much for me. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, and I think when we get to Omega versus Naito, we'll probably talk about your um. Oh boy, we'll probably talk about your problems with Kenny Omega. Sure. Honestly, when I think about it, and when I went back and watched older Kenny Omega stuff, uh-huh. like it just seems like the criticism, like, like what was your criticism of Omega that he seems like you know he's this goofy supervillain now? Uh, no, it's um, I think a lot of it comes down to the authenticity that I've talked about a lot in these podcasts, um, or it's. Or it's like what I would want New Japan to be, um, because I have like, like I obviously have a lot of connection in New Japan. Like Shinya Hashimoto is one of my favorite wrestlers ever, and he was, you know, the guy in New Japan for a very long time. Um, and so it's it's sort of a combination of those sorts of feelings. But we'll talk about it more with that match and with another match in my top uh, twelve. All right, sure. So what's your number twenty? Uh, my number 20 rounds us out with a series of matches we've talked about a lot here on this podcast. It's Chris Hero and Zack Sabre Jr. in the finals of the AAW Gym Lina Memorial Tournament. All right, I didn't expect you to have this over the um, WXW match. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you didn't expect me to have this over my hipster pick? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> um, well, in a lot of ways, this kind of feels like the ultimate Hero versus Zack Sabre Jr. match, which is both like a good and a bad thing. Um... It's a bad thing because these two can have their problems with, you know, like excess and self-awareness problems that are like exacerbated in matches against each other. And, you know, this match is no different. Um, there are some points in this match that sort of annoy me, like some crowd work, especially from Zach, that is like a little just too cutesy. Uh, the finishing stretch that is like over the top, even compared to their other previous matches. But in a way, I think it kind of works. Um, this is probably the second to last match these two will ever have in their careers. Uh, and it's a big tournament final setting. There's a lot of symbolism here from like before the bell even starts, like during the ring announcements, uh, Zach's sitting slumped in his corner with his suplex uh, apparel banner draped around his shoulders. And opposite him is Chris Hero, like clad in gold sitting on the middle rope of like his ring. Um, looking very much like the reigning emperor and ruler of all things wrestling. Uh, when Hero finally defeats Zack with like this really, <laughs> this really like inhuman <laughs> middle rope pile driver, Zack's like unable to move afterward. He's all twisted and mangled, twitching feebly. He's like, he's broken inside and out because he still can't beat this guy in a big match setting. And after the match, they share like an ice pack um, in this, this moment of, of understanding of this like, unknowable difficult bond that they have like this is this is their most repetitive match and like forcefully epic match but i sort of buy into it because of like a real life situation in which it was one of the last ones they're ever going to have and there's like the the gym line memorial context of it and i don't know it kind of swept me off my feet it like falls apart in ways that their other matches um always do but it does so even more here but like I kind of like watching it crash and burn. And you know, you said this is their second to last match, and their last match together, their very last one for the foreseeable future, at least, is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess like next sa- Friday or Saturday this weekend. 
Yeah, so, uh, man, that's going to be an emotional thing. Totally, totally, yeah. Like, I don't, like, I'm not a big Zack fan, and we talk about it a lot, but, like, this has been a very important feud in wrestling recently, and to, like, see it come to a premature end is, it's kind of sad. Alright, so, my number 20 is Trevor Lee versus Jesse Adler from CWF Mid-Atlantic. Sadly, because, like, I just did not get to get around to it. I didn't get to see this or many of the other big Trevor Lee matches throughout the year. This, to me, is probably the most glaring example of Trevor Lee being a complete ring general. Okay. Because Trevor Lee, at this point, is 22 years old. And he takes this (laughs) kid... Jesus Christ. (laughs) He takes this kid, Jesse Adler, who's literally 18 years old. And they go out there and have this amazing student-versus-teacher match. Mm. Keep in mind what I just said. (laughs) Trevor Lee is only four years older than Jesse Adler. Yep, it's like the difference between you and me. (laughs) Like, literally only four years. And then they go out there and have this match where Trevor Lee is, like, mocking him, joking around. You know, he's trying to get the fire out of Jesse because, Mm -hmm. as as, as I put it um, in some ways, it's like, Trevor Lee is trying to get Jesse ready because when Trevor leaves, it's going to be Jesse's car to drive. Uh huh. And he's trying to make Jesse realize that he's on this level. He can be great. You know, Trevor Lee is the big dog, but at least Jesse Adler can, you know, try How to come How many big close. dogs are there in wrestling? There's a lot of them. There's this one, there's Andrew Everett, there's Shuchi Shikawa, there's Roman Reigns. Like, there's so many big dogs. <laughs> yeah, but like, Trevor Lee is the top guy, and he wants Jesse Adler to realize that someday he's going to have to be in this spot. Uh-huh. And it's a fantastic bit of storytelling. When Jesse Adler finally gets confident and starts taking it to Trevor Lee, Trevor's demeanor starts to completely change. He starts taking him way more seriously. He does all the deft moves that you would expect Trevor Lee to do when a match starts to pick up, like the double stomp, the STF, and all that stuff. It gets brutal down the stretch. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they create something where this literal kid goes out <laughs> there with someone who's not that far removed from being a kid uh-huh. have this kind of fantastic pupil and mentor match that it kind of blows my mind that Trevor Lee is able to do that so yeah. early. Yeah. And then it, even more when you think about the fact that Jesse Adler stopped wrestling, you know, that you look at this and you wonder what could have been because Jesse Adler I thought was fantastic here and he did some great stuff, but this was easily the best match he had. And I wonder if he could have done more if he, uh, stuck with wrestling. I remember asking around and not getting like a definitive answer. Do you happen to know why he stopped? I don't know. You know, he, I, I yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever told the story. Just heard okay. it on making towns and yeah, I don't, it's disappointing too. Cause I like Jesse Adler. So totally. It's, it's, it's always sad to see someone who got away, you know? Yeah. So, all right. What is your 19? My number 19 is uh, a very polarizing match for um, a lot of good reasons, but it's one I like quite a bit. It's Samoa Joe versus Sami Zayn in a two out of three falls match from NXT 187. I actually, meant, I actually wanted to rewatch this, but mm. I didn't find the time to because I think in the moment a lot of people hated this match. Yeah, I, I saw like I saw opinions ranging from match of the year to worst match of the year, which is quite quite a mix. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, very much a mixed bag, but uh, you can go ahead, because I think there was a lot of stuff in this match to like. 
Uh-huh. And like that's really why I enjoy it is that um, there's a lot of elements in here that I enjoy. And it's two dudes who I love quite a bit. Two guys who are very central to my understanding of wrestling. Uh, Samoa Joe um, probably comes the closest to replicating a match from his prime here like the closest he's come in years like he's still you know 11 years removed from when he was like the greatest wrestler in the world but like he gets he gets really close here to sort of recapturing that fire with his like his um it's not just his domination it's like his little touches his facials his body language the way he interacts with his opponents and the referee and the crowd um the way the way he'd sell the fact that he's an unstoppable monster who sometimes comes face to face with someone who has like a good chance of beating him, which is like a real subtle thing that is hard to pull off. Uh, sadly, Zane is like the clear wink point in this match. He had just recently come back from injury and it's very clear that he's not firing on all cylinders and it's sort of, I don't know. I kind of wish that this had happened a couple months later or even a full year later, because some people would say that he never found his groove again in 2016, but you know, say la vie, what can you do? Um, even though neither one of these guys are like at the top of their game, they create like this really compelling and multi-layered 40 minute two out of three falls match. We can call backs to previous matches they've had with each other, previous matches they've had with other people that keep things mean focused at times, <laughs> straight up dangerous. They stick to themes and game plans that give you like a greater insight to who they are as characters, especially Joe. Um, there's, a, there's, there's, there's something that happens here that only really happens in NXT and I'll bring it up later too. Um, at one point Zane is making this big comeback in the first fall and he accidentally busts Joe open with like a kick, like a drop kick or something. And the referee stops the match to check on Joe and it totally cuts off Sami Zayn's comeback. And it's a huge momentum switch that allows Joe to take over once again. And I like that sort of like shoot refereeing, you know what I mean? Like it really, it adds an element of drama to matches that is, it's different. It's not, it's not something that's actually wrestling between the two wrestlers. It's something um, outside of that. And I can appreciate that a lot. Uh, Joe's heel work is really great here. At one point he's got Sammy in a cross face, you know, targeting that injured shoulder of his. And he, and as Sammy is like struggling to the ropes, he's screaming at him like inches away from his ear. Think of your career. Think of your career. And it's, it's just stellar. It's it, asshole Samoa Joe. And it's my favorite thing in the world. It's, it's sort of like an uneven and inconsistent match, especially on Zane's end with his selling and his offense. But like, it's something that I really enjoy in the end. Uh, Joe, avoids the Huluva kick and just slaps on the Kikina clutch for the referee stoppage victory. And then there's this awesome moment after the match where um, Zayn is on the mat selling, like still recovering from being knocked unconscious, like breathing more evenly, like slowly getting back into the slowly, like regaining consciousness, like feeling his lips a little. And they make sure to like hover on it with the camera and really hold on that shot. Uh, as Corey Graves is, <laughs> he's talking about how the rear naked choke recently defeated Holly Holm and Conor McGregor. And it's like, usually when WWE brings up like that real life stuff, it's annoying. Um, especially when like someone like Marlon Ronaldo does it, but here it's like, I don't know. I really, I really buy into like the little things that they do here. And I understand why someone wouldn't like this. It's really slow. Um, Zane's, Zane's performance is far from perfect. 
but like there's overarching themes in this that I really enjoy and a lot of little touches that like I think add up to make um, maybe not a great match but a really good one. One thing that you had mentioned here that I thought was really great about this match is that they did something unique in terms of limb work is that Samoa Joe went after Sami Zayn's nose. Mm, yeah, that happened. <laughs> like, there's there's a lot here. This is like a 40-minute match. There's This was an entire episode of NXT. There's a lot to take in. And I really like the way they spaced out the falls, too, because mm-hmm. if you watch Lucha or any other, ma- like, two or three falls match, sometimes the two or three falls or the first two falls don't mean anything. Uh-huh. So it's good to see a good amount of space between yeah. the, you know, three falls that occur. It the really, first one's like 25 minutes long. It's yeah, really it long. Really, it really makes the match feel um, segmented. Yeah. Which is, um, you're able to tell um, more clear stories with, like that. Um, but yeah, I like that match a lot. I wanted to rewatch it, but I didn't get around to it. But I don't know that I actually knew anyone who watched it. Or maybe it's just because, like, I wasn't with Wrestling With Words at the time, so... Uh, like, it wasn't until six months afterwards that I joined, so maybe I just didn't know anybody who had watched it at the time. I know Trash loves the match. Okay. Yeah, I know Trash really liked it. Like if well, he he's a coward it. and didn't come on here to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my number 19 is AJ Styles versus Roman Reigns from Extreme Rules. Oh, okay. We didn't talk about this early, did we? No, we talked about the payback match. Okay. This was their best match together and it's completely it's, they're, it's completely chaotic um, a lot of people point to this as an all time great AJ Styles performance and he does mm-hmm. take some nutty bumps here like the um, back body drop through the announcement table is insane pretty nuts yeah but man I'll be honest here I think Roman Reigns had a performance of his life here this guy was incredible I thought he was so smug he was so like <laughs> dominant yeah. he felt like a huge star just taking it to aj styles the way he would like bad mouth them when he's in control like his facial expressions it was a masterful roman reigns performance and we mentioned it in the payback match but these guys just have fantastic chemistry where roman reigns as this big menacing figure going up against the aj styles who has all these athletic tricks up his sleeve it makes for some really fantastic wrestling. Mm-hmm. And the Usos and the club come out, and it gets really chaotic because, uh, you know, pretty much becomes stable warfare. But I love it. AJ Styles going nuts on the on the, um, the Usos with chairs, and mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch to take in here. It's The only thing that's a downside about it is the, is the crowd brawling, which kind of felt unnecessary. Really? Yeah, the crowd, like when they go out to the um, pre-show panel set, and yeah. like they're over there. It feels like they didn't need to do that at all. Okay. But I very much liked everything about everything else about the match. And if the you know, brawling all the way over there didn't happen, then it probably would have been a little bit higher. Not sure. much higher, but just like a, you know would have been over a couple of matches. But yeah, I think this match is fantastic and as far as main roster, it's the best thing that was on that was on WWE this year. Yeah, I had this at um at number 63 on my list. And I, I, I share some of the same sentiments. Like, this is, like, some incredible WWE main event style, like, bomb throwing. Like, mechanically, what these guys do is, like, really great. Um, some of some of the best timed spots I've ever seen in WWE history, yeah. which is really saying something. Um, I kind of found it, like, it's weird. It, it simultaneously has a lot of heat, 
at least due to the fact that like they're doing these big moves and like this big brawling and all these hardcore spots but like it sort of came across as like sterile to me like i'm not sure if these two guys bring uh the sort of emotion that i like to see in wrestling and that for that reason it sort of didn't hit me as hard as it did a ton of other people i think the thing is that um we listen to the crowd uh-huh. that the crowd is like in aj styles but the thing is that they're super into booing roman reigns oh my god so many you still suck chance dude and i love it where roman reigns <laughs> is doing all this amazing stuff and it's like no yeah. fuck you you still rem- suck <laughs> I remember thinking, like, I would have preferred this match to have happened at Payback in front of the um, Allstate Arena crowd because Rosemont's great. Like, Rosemont always brings the heat, and I thought that crowd was so much better than this one. But, say la vie. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's a great, great match. And even though mm. it wasn't like a... I think the entire... I think the feud in general was really great. But mm, you're right yeah. here. But, the, but the, you're right here that this um, particular match wasn't like... um super violent or heated or anything yeah it, i don't know maybe it's just maybe it's just how it came across to me all right so what's your 18 my 18 is uh sort of something that i feel was kind of overlooked at the time due to uh it falling on a really incredible day for japanese wrestling it's yosuke santa maria versus eta from dragon gates kobe pro wrestling festival oh okay i remember thinking at the time that this was the match of the night out of all the promotions that ran July 24th, which is a lot. <laughs> That's saying something. WWE, um, Big Japan, Dragon Gate, so. Yeah. Uh, no, there was oh, a uh, G1 show, show too. Yeah, yeah. Was, that was on Naito versus Elgin. Yep. There was, there was a lot of big shit going on that night. Um, I just, I thought it was the best for, like, I don't know. It, it's I, I talked about it a lot so far in these shows, like smallness in wrestling and uh, reserved uh, things in wrestling and understated matches. And that's what this was. Like Aids is on probably the best run of his career, and he's going up against uh, someone who had a very underrated Brave Gate title run in Yosuke Santa Maria. And they keep things tight. They do a lot of arm work. Uh, Maria is probably giving some of the best selling that I've seen in Dragon Gate as of late. They have a really awesome finishing sequence that is like super exciting. It got me really excited and, and happy and hyped, um, but wasn't like as over the top as it would be in like a main event setting. It just, I really appreciated this short 11 minute little like spot fest match. That wasn't as spotty as it could have been. And one thing you didn't mention is that, uh, the added dynamic here is that Ada and Yosuke Santa Maria used to be stable mates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, the is, so there is that kind of um, stuff playing off of it where Ada is trying to prove himself by going over someone that he used to, you know, be in a unit with. Yeah, and, and while in the Millennials unit, he was a higher-ranked member, someone who had actually held titles back then, but Maria in the past year sort of had eclipsed him. Yeah, which is weird to think about, actually. Very very much so, yes. Yeah, so. Alright. My number 18 is Tatsuya Naito versus Tomohiro Ishii from Wrestling Dantaku. Okay. Um, this didn't make my list, but I actually like it a lot. This features, like, one of Ishii's best performances. And keep in mind that mm-hmm. this guy, over the last, what, <laughs> four years, has been tremendous. Sure. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that uh this may be the only iwgp heavyweight title shot this guy ever gets yep. but in a way that's kind of like poetic that this guy uh 
he gets this one shot and he left everything out there. Totally. And he couldn't get it done. And that's kind of the Ishii character is that. Very much so. Like sometimes he'll win, but mostly he'll lose. But, you know, the dude doesn't quit. He's persistent. He's stubborn as hell. And this match perfectly embodies why Ishii is so great because his selling, his determination, the guy going through everything that Lewis and Gorbonavis is throwing at him, mm-hmm. he doesn't quit. You know, Ishii's one of the most easily, you know, easy to root for guys in wrestling where he's so sympathetic, even though he's such a hard ass that you, you know, <laughs> like it's a weird balance he has where he's like this <laughs> macho, uber masculine tough guy that doesn't want to show pain. Yeah. But he is vulnerable at the same time. Like when Ishii gets chopped in his throat. Yeah. And he just crumbles. You feel bad for this guy. And the thing is that Ishii and Naito have always had this weird chemistry together. So good. Like, I think the best match of 2014 was the two of them together. <laughs> yeah, like for some reason these two have insane chemistry. Mm-hmm. And obviously when they were facing each other before, it was on a smaller scale, facing each other for the Never title. But this is for the big belt, and it feels, you know, grander. Now, grand, now granted, I know someone like Brock would probably um, prefer their uh, smaller scale matches, but well, sort of like they're. I would, I'm I'm not sure. I'd have to rewatch them, but I think their never matches might be even crazier. Yeah, they are. When I'm saying like smaller scale, as in like the stakes aren't as high. Mm, sure, sure, maybe it's not. It's not the you know New Japan main event style. Sure, totally. So like what... like um for example the New Japan Cup match that they had yeah um where I actually think I did appreciate this one more than the New Japan Cup one but oh, okay. you're not you're not wrong though all right so other than Ishii and Naito just having ridiculous chemistry this is Naito's first title defense mm-hmm. and I think it was a smart decision to go with who's probably his best opponent totally and this is like a stellar stellar Ishii performance and a great one from Naito that was um. A great way to kick off a title reign. Granted, it was a short run, yep. but I think they did a probably the right decision. Like they didn't go with Goto, which probably would have been like the easy one to do. Mm. They and Goto had already had just had a title shot too. Yeah, like you know, but they go with Ishii, and if it's Ishii's only ever shot at the title, it was probably the exact match they should have had. Yeah. All right. So, what's your seventeen? My 17, speaking of small guys, it was my favorite small guy in the business right now, John Silver, taking on one of my favorite big dudes, Keith Lee, at Beyond's Ripped Off in the Prime of Life. This match is insane. This match is bananas, Quentin. (laughs) B-A-N-A-N-A-S. It's, like, sometimes, though, wrestling is simple. You know what I mean? It's like, you put two charismatic dudes one of them like this big hulking giant and the other a diminutive little bruiser you put them in the ring together and let them go at it and they just make magic happen you know what i mean yeah it's it's not smart it's not complicated it's not multi-layered it's just it's two guys who have a shtick and they know how to make it work creating breathtaking spots as their personalities interact silver is like five three and you shouldn't be able to throw keith lee around but with all the effort and heart that he puts into it you you believe it and you want to see it happen and keith lee is so captivating as he tosses john silver into the sun repeatedly it's um it's beautiful i love it this features maybe the greatest powerbomb ever hit (laughs) it's so crazy (laughs) like even if you don't watch this whole match which you know just watch Mm. the whole match it's short you can you can get it on 
YouTube for free. Beyond put it up on YouTube. Yeah, but at least you have to see the power bomb that so, is out of so this nuts. world. <laughs> it's so nuts. <laughs> it's it's like it's a heart stopping match. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So my number seventeen is Hideyoshi Kamatani versus Shuji Shikawa from Big mm. Japan, and this is the finals of the Strong Climb tournament. Iki Towson Strong Climb. And this happened on the same day, exactly, like pretty much at the same time as Invasion Attacks main event was going on. Was it? I thought this was on May the 5th. No, this Oh, like, no, that's not. That's the, yeah, that's the next big show. That they yeah, this, yeah, yeah this, was on April, this was on April 10th. Okay, okay. So, I mentioned earlier about Hideyoshi Kamatani versus Yuji Okabayashi being like the happy ending to the young boy trying to, you know, chase his dreams. Mm-hmm. This is him getting shot down violently and being told, don't ever come back here. Mm. This is Kamatani trying to take it straight to Shuji Shikawa, trying to prove he's on that level. And he puts up a valiant effort, mm. but Shuji proves to be way too much for him. Kamatani's in over his head. And um, the finish here... Or, like, the finishing stretch is brutal as hell, man. I mean... Mm, very much so. I kind of liken it to, uh... Not, like, a horror movie, but, like, you, def- you ever, like, seen, <laughs> you know... A scene where it's, like, the protagonist won't stay down and just die? Uh-huh. This is what this was. Like, Shuji kept hitting him with death, death moves, headbutts, forearms, knees... And Kamatani just wouldn't stay down. And the referee is, like, pleading with Kamatani to stay down. He's (laughs) begging him. And then Kamatani's just, no, he has nothing left. And Shuji finally puts him away. But it's a match where it felt like um, Kamatani, even in defeat, was um, elevated. While still, you know, making Shuji Shikawa look like this unstoppable monster. And And that would become a theme of 2016 with Shuji Shikawa just going around destroying mm-hmm. all the young talent in Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, was this your highest ranked Shuji match? Yes. Okay, um, am I wrong in thinking that Shuji Ishikawa was maybe the best male wrestler in Japan in 2016? No, I probably... Hold on, I'm trying to think. Like, I think Naito would be up there. Uh, yeah. Outside of that, I don't know if I have another pick. My top, like, like, off the top of my head, would be, like, Shuji, Naito, and Yamato. Mm, okay. But, yeah, Shuji is a more than viable number one pick and probably would be my number one if I, like, tried to, have, like, hash out a list. I thought it was, like, a weird year in Japan, but, like, he really excelled in multiple promotions. Yeah, he did. And honestly, I'm trying to think if All Japan is going to do anything with him this year. Since... I should hope so. Yeah, He'd really be a good do. defense. Like, Shuji versus, uh, you know... Whoever has the triple crown, like Shuji versus Kanto or Shuji versus Zeus, or yeah, if like if Zeus were to win it, like he would be a good first defense for Zeus, or even like Shuji versus Joe Doring, like oh yes, yeah. Joe Doring, I'm so glad he's back. Yeah, but you know Shuji, I'm hoping gets used in all Japan more this year. So, what's your 16? Uh, my 16 was a match I think you brought up earlier, but I could be wrong about that. It's the Revival versus DIY and the two out of three falls match from NXT TakeOver Toronto. No, I have this higher than you. Okay, I wasn't sure. I knew you had this high, but I wasn't sure how high. So we'll talk about it in a bit. Alright, so my number 16 is Dragon Lee versus Kamatachi from March 4th. Uh, I did not have this one. Okay, well, not at all? Not at all. Wow, okay. Um, 
I guess the question is, uh, do you think? It's How gonna... dare you? <laughs> I don't know. Just like I mean, what kind of keeps it off? Um, I mean, because um, I don't know. For me, this kind of feels like the end of their um canon feud, if you know what I mean. Like it feels mm, like yes. after this, this feels like um the end of them as we knew them. Totally. Um, and I think in a similar way, I thought because that was the end, I was really let down by it. Like I had just watched their uh, Fantastic Mania match. And uh, I had noted that in every single match of theirs, they escalated things uh, in at least some small way that I really appreciated that added like a bit of narrative and storytelling to this otherwise stupid spot fest series of matches. Um, But this one, like it didn't, it wasn't bad in any sense. Like it was these two doing their thing, which is always enjoyable to watch, but like it felt like such a step backward from the uh, December 4th and Fantastico Mania matches. I think what I'll say here is that they did something that, um, unless you watch the matches in order, and maybe mm. if you even watch the matches in order, you wouldn't pick up on. Sure. But obviously, Dragon Lee had a lot of moves that he's put away Kamatachi with. He's put him away mm-hmm. with a double fuss up in the corner. He's put him away with the Regal Plex and the Orange Crush and mm-hmm. other stuff like that. But the one move that he did, well, that he hadn't done in such a long time, was the um, Phoenix Plex. Mm hmm. And this is what he ends Kamatachi off with here. He destroys him with a Phoenix Plex for the first time in a long time. Yeah, it'd been many months. Yeah, that's why I like that finish so much. Because he pulled out a finish that he legitimately hadn't had to use on this guy since like 2015. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a great touch. Besides that, I think these two, this is their match that most outwardly tries to be epic. And I think they do succeed. And I do think um, it was kind of a great thing to see Kamatachi walking down all smug in Arena Mexico. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I won this title in Japan and now I'm back here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think they succeeded in, um, I guess, them having what would be the last in-canon installment of their rivalry. As far uh-huh. as, like, you know, this was the end of Kamatachi in yeah. CMLL. Now we have Hiromu Takahashi and we'll see where they take it a new beginning but Man, this yeah. felt, but this felt like the real end of Kamatachi and if this was the end of that character as we grew fond of him then I thought it was a great way to go out sure sure I remember um I, I think the best way to describe how I was sort of let down by this was I remember uh a little over a year ago December 2015 after I'd already been watching their matches up to that point they had the 12-4 match and I didn't get to watch it live, but I heard the results of it, and it blew my mind that they had a four falls match. <laughs> and that, like, still sticks with me to this day. And I think the fact that they didn't have a five falls match here was sort of a letdown. The thing about this feud is that there's so many matches uh-huh. that I can see so many, like, other matches being someone's favorite, like. Someone, sure. Someone yeah, like I know. The, I know people who like the lightning match the most. Yeah, someone like the lightning match, or the mask versus mask match, or the August match, or the December yeah. match, or the Fantastic Mania, or this match. Like the thing about their feud is that you can say which one is your favorite, and it doesn't feel like you're being like you know, sure. picky, like picky or something. Totally. Um. So, what's your fifteen? Uh, my fifteen is someone that we just recently brought up. It's uh, Tomohiro Ishii taking on 
the big dog chris hero <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> at rev pros global war uh uk 2016 day one okay so hold on so where did i have this i had it on you had list. it kind of high as in much god i hate this, <laughs> this semantics <laughs> doing this i just i don't know which one's which you know what i mean <laughs> i had this at 77 yeah jesus christ um you want me to take it then yeah you go ahead okay so this is uh this is Chris Hero versus Tomohiro Ishii. This is, you know, the boisterous, self-assured, while simultaneously sort of self-conscious best in the world versus the steely indifference of a man who's been beaten his entire life. Um, it, you might disagree, but I think it's hard to say that this didn't deliver. They play to their strengths. They add clever twists to please uh, a pretty good crowd here in Bethnal Green, highlighting their personalities. It's, it's mostly a hero bully formula match, but it feels different notably it's a lot shorter it's only like 13 minutes um versus the usual 20 plus for chris hero bully formula matches uh it's a little more reserved than usual but it still delivers like a ton of action a lot of personality and a finishing stretch that is like far less convoluted but very exciting and i think it reminds me a lot of the um the other recent hero dream matches like versus pentagon jr the first one at least um and against jushin liger and i think I think that's sort of the calling card of a great dream match is that it makes you feel like you've seen this big, thrilling, worthwhile knockdown drag out fight without both men killing each other too much. Yeah. Which is weird to say because Tomohiro Ishii is known for just murdering totally. himself and other people. And Hiro can be prone to doing the same thing. Now, I love this match a lot. So, again, I have no issue with it being high. I. Or low. Yeah, high, low, whatever <laughs> Brock and his weird semantics want to, want to say. It's there's not, a, there's not a clear decision. Like, I don't know which one's which, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, I love this match. It just didn't uh, feel like something that I could have higher. Mm-hmm. But one It's question... like, it's it's not what a lot of people were expecting while some, simultaneously being exactly what people wanted, you know? Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted it to be. Like, so... Mm-hmm. I completely agree with what you were saying. Um, yeah. One question here is that um, Harrison or Tiger Millionaire for he was one of the first mm-hmm. guys that made this comparison, and that this kind of felt like the you know closest thing that we'll ever get to another Joe versus Kobashi. Yes, I saw that a lot, like from Dylan Hales as well. And I was thinking about that, um, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily a fair comparison because like Joe versus Kobashi was like the best wrestler in the world taking on the best wrestler in the world yeah. in in one man's prime in one man's like second renaissance right. and this this isn't quite the same this is a similar level but they also just don't put as much into it like i think i, I think joe versus kobashi just had like a lot more going on with it and this yeah. is similar this is definitely like in the same vein but i don't know that i would compare the two too much you're not saying that anyone's like comparing them either i think mm-hmm. That's the thing is that he's saying it's the closest thing that we'll get to another one. Yeah, I know a lot of people said that this was that match for this generation. Yeah, and I think yeah. that is an interesting comp because it's Chris Hero who's become over the last two years like this mythological wrestling figure, uh-huh. and then Ishi, who you know who came up from nothing essentially to become one of the most talked about guys in New Japan's Renaissance period. Uh huh. You know, he's kind of been the unsung hero of New Japan of the last few years. So it was an interesting dynamic to have a guy that, if you follow independent wrestling, is the best in the world versus a guy mm-hmm. that kind of is the um, low-key MVP of the second biggest promotion in the world at this point. Yeah, like I don't think 
every year that I've done a match of the year and wrestler of the year list, I don't think anyone from New Japan has ranked higher for me than Ishii. Yeah. All right, so my number 15 is a match that you just mentioned is Shima, Masachi, Mochizuki, Gamma, mm, Dragon okay. Kid, and Don Fuji versus <laughs> Ben K, Shun Skywalker, Hyo Watanabe, Yuki Yoshioka, and Katsumi okay. Takashima from Dragon Gate in its December 1st and it's a Corican show. Yep. This um, match, before, before we get into our thoughts, <laughs> this was a match that had a lot of crossover appeal. For instance, yes, yes it did, yes. Sam yes. from We Don't Know Wrestling really enjoyed this match. And I remember him asking after watching us, uh-huh. he was like, how come more Dragon Gate isn't like this? And we can get into why when we talk about the match itself, but or also that more Dragon Gate is like this, but people don't always see it. But yeah, but yes, we'll get into it. Yeah, but um, you can go ahead, man. Um, intergenerational warfare is like a fundamental element and like a fundamental central part of Dragon Gate for yes. a good reason, and it's and it's because it is so much fun to watch surly vets. And insolent young punks go at it. It is so much fun to watch people who hate each other just beat the fuck out of each other for like 20 minutes or so in front of a really hot crowd. Like it's it's been too long since we've seen a Cork and Brawl that was this good. And I, I, I hope we don't have to wait too long for another one. The thing about this is that the way this is set up is that on the previous Kurokin show, Shima is kind of like kind of coming out in acknowledging the young boys and mm. trying to make them feel good. And then they surround him. We should make note, all of the, like there's a, there's a veterans team here and a rookies team here. All of the rookies on this list were less than four months into the business at this point. Also, Katsumi Takashimo, this was literally his first match. Uh, yes. <laughs> like this is, this is kind of nuts for what sort of situation this is. <laughs> so on the previous Kurokin show, Shima had been, um, pretty much intimidated mm. by the rookie team. They mm-hmm. surrounded him and were like closing in on him. And he's like, okay, you want to do that? <laughs> well, I'm going to get Mochizuki, Gamma, Dragon Kid, and Don Fuji. And I, we're going to teach you a lesson. <laughs> and my God, this <laughs> veterans team. <laughs> Let's talk about Masaki Mochizuki. He comes out and he does not give a single fuck. He is kicking everybody. This match, I think, qualifies as hazing. This match would get, like, a fraternity shut down. Dude. In, in, in the States. <laughs> Dude, even Dragon Kid is kicking the shit out of people. Uh, yeah, even DK. <laughs> Dude, like, this oh, match man. is pretty ridiculous. And then when Ben K and Mo- Mochizuki kind of face off. It's so crap, nuts. Ben K's eyes are so crazy here. <laughs> Dude, Ben K is amazing. Uh... Masaki Mochizuki, I thought I thought was the best guy in the match. Uh-huh. But everyone in here was fantastic. Even Kasumi Takashima. This is literally totally. his first match. <laughs> totally. They like these young guys bring it. They bring it so hard. And then the finish here is brutal as hell. Oh my god. Kills Kyo <laughs> oh Watanabe. Like I think Watanabe kicks out at one he kicks out of I don't kicks out at one on a kick. The Mochizuki picks him back up and just takes his head off. He doesn't even, he pins him, he like just kneels on him yes. for the pin, and he doesn't even stay down for the entire three count. Because <laughs> he's just so confident that he's dead. <laughs> it's, 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 mwah, bellissima. It's oh, so, man, this is, so wonderful. Yeah, so this is a wonderful match. It's something that is totally unique 
um, I guess, to Dragon Gate because you don't get this kind of outward violence that often. There may be like yeah. some low key violence going on. But yeah, there's is, always there's always like intergenerational strife going on, but not to this degree. This is full on almost gang warfare essentially. Uh huh. And it is great, and we can talk now about you know why doesn't this happen as often? I guess to this extent. Yeah. And it's like you know, really, if this happened all the time, <laughs> would it feel as special? <laughs> well, that, that too, and I think. There's there's constant injuries in Dragon Gate. Like Kotsuka just got injured today and is going to be out for a while, probably. What? With yeah, uh, Ja posted on it. Just posted about it on Twitter. Oh, he apparently has some some knee thing. Yeah, it's real sad. Uh, but those guys, because of the style they do and how how crazy often they run, they get injured a lot. And I think that's part of it is that if they did more matches like this, they would die. Yeah, and I mean, and then on top of that, it's like if you run this kind of match that often. Wouldn't it not feel as special? Yeah, totally. The re- like like the reason why better. this, the reason why this is so high on both of our lists. When you say is that because it feels like a special thing that's going mm-hmm. on? I, I specifically mentioned that it's been a while since we saw a cork and bra like this, and if we had one every week, it wouldn't feel as good. Yeah, so you know, while understanding that for some people that don't love the Dragon Gate style, they would like to see mm-hmm. more of this. Mm-hmm. It's something that I mean, if if it happened so often, you'd kind of lose what totally. makes a moment like this feel special. It feels like a moment that we'll look back on in like 10 years. <laughs> yeah. It this is... does, this feels like a very important generational thing in the same way that say like the millennials debuting was. Yeah. This feels like, you know, especially with Ben K and the way he was presented here, it feels like, uh-huh. you know, we are watching stars be created in front of us. And that's why I was saying like, um, that the November core can show and that the December core can show this one were the perfect starting points for anyone that wanted to get into Dragon Gate. Mm-hmm. because that's when the young boys are really starting starting to go into their own mm-hmm. and if someone like and if you're someone that doesn't follow dragon gate lore you're um intimidated about jumping in because you're so behind totally. it'd be the perfect time because you can attach yourself to these characters mm-hmm. because if you jump in now you're pretty much going to be watching these guys for the rest of their careers hopefully i mean there's always like dragon gates had a lot of guys who are yeah. in and out you know, but, the, but and, you know, fingers crossed. And that's the thing is that Dragon Gate is kind of like overflowing with talent right now. Oh yeah, totally. So if you're, you know, we just mentioned Katoka, um, Katoka, who is super young, and he got injured for the second time. So it's like you know, hopefully Ben K and Shun and Hyo. I really like Yuki Yoshioka. I don't think he gets enough credit, but I remember, um, I remember not being able to tell the difference between the two of them because they they have the exact same like super plain young lions outfit and i was like you guys have the same haircut i i don't know you well enough to tell the difference <laughs> like this is hard i'm trying to figure out who put takashima in this nasty boston crab uh dude, probably fuji or someone dude he put him in a torture crab it's kind of nuts and then takashima who's absurdly flexible kinda oh like, yeah he kind of like, he kind of like goes even further into bending his back and turns that into a roll-up yeah he, he totally like scorpions himself to to get it's nuts this match is insane <laughs> watching this, match, this man. watching this you'd think it was like 2002 with the way that like how fast and how furious shima and fuji and mochizuki are yeah um so what's your 14 great stuff uh my 14 is a match that i talked about quite a bit but i'm not sure if too many other people love it's jay lethal versus leo rush from roh's supercard of honor 10 day one Oh, man, I'm glad that you have this super high. I have this at 58. Okay. Um, I think this is far and away 
Lethal's best heel performance ever, and probably his best match that doesn't include Samoa Joe. And likewise, this was like, I had seen Leo Rush before this, like I'm a big CZW fan, he's been in CZW for quite a while, but this was the first time that I ever like got an indication that he was going to be something special. This is just like a really great, straightforward veteran heel champ versus an upstart rookie match. Lethal is oozing confidence and just toys with his younger challenger, getting like hyper aggressive whenever Leo starts to turn things around and uh, get some momentum going. But every time, Lethal will in turn just loosen up and get a little cocky and sloppy with things, and then Leo will turn around again. And it's a nice, like, natural narrative uh, right up until the finish when uh, Lethal. <laughs> They do this like really weird spot um, where Lethal's going for the lethal injection and he's like yelling at Leo to get up like this is your moment as if uh, <laughs> as if Leo's entire career is going to revolve around losing to Jay Lethal. Uh, and it's a wonderful heel moment and Leo fights back out of it before getting stuffed down for the finish. And I just it's so it's so simple. These guys put everything into it. It's a story that plays out clearly and concisely. It doesn't waste your time. Uh, there's an awesome post-match angle with Colt Cabana that I think is really underrated. Taylor Hendricks is really great in this outside of like one needlessly sexualized spot that I'm not a big fan of. But, um, other than that, this is like my favorite thing easily that ROH did in 2016. Yeah, it's a total package. It's a great match because Jay Lethal puts on this masterful dominant performance. And then right after that, they go into a fantastic promo from Colt Cabana. Like, this is the best one-two punch that probably happened in wrestling so far. Yeah, last it's year. been so long since ROH was firing on all cylinders like that. Yeah, it's kind of bad that they squandered it away so quickly. A fucking bullet club. Duh! <laughs> I, hated I hated it. I was so hyped for this Lethal versus Cabana match, and they just fucking bullet clubbed it up. Yeah, but that was a... Leo Rush had a great underdog performance, and it probably mm-hmm. gets lost in how great Jay Lethal was. But yeah, man. this is one of those matches that like solidified the fact for me that Leo was so much uh, a better Rookie of the Year pick than Riddle. Mm. And that's super controversial. I understand that, but like I look at the I look at the numbers or my numbers, the numbers. as it were. <laughs> I look at the numbers. We have analytical uh, facts here. <laughs> totally, these are alternative facts. <laughs> um, but, like, I, I look at what matches meant the most to me, and, like, Leo Rush was so much better. And it's on the back of matches like this. All right, so my number 14 is a match that you haven't said yet, so I'm assuming you have it a little bit higher than me. Jimmy Ray versus Gunnar Miller versus Anthony Henry versus Chris Hero from the Scenic City Invitational Night 2. Yeah, I have this quite a bit higher, so we'll talk about it in a bit. All right, so what's your 13? Uh, my 13, I think, is one you brought up already. It's uh, my favorite wrestler in the world, Kazuchika Okada, versus Tomohiro Ishii in New Japan's G1 Climax Day 13. <laughs> I had this at... Uh, it was high. Check. I had this at 53. Oh, Jesus. I had it a whole 40 spots lower than you. Uh, I really enjoy the fact that you had an Okada match <laughs> that much higher kind of than bl- me. kind of blows my mind. And this really, really, really warms my heart. <laughs> I'd have to rewatch the Tanahashi stuff, which I might be doing very soon for an article. This might be my favorite Okada match. I wouldn't argue with you. <laughs> kind of blows my mind. Um, like, my biggest complaint about Okada normally, and most of the other, like, top-level New Japan guys, is that their matches are so routine and lifeless at this point after watching them for so many years um, that there's no, like, innovation or fire. But then, enter Tomohiro Ishii, fresh off his one and only title shot 
at the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, a pissed-off mid-carder who has a bone to pick with the guys above him. Um, keep, in mind forces, these, keep in mind these two are stablemates, too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, he forces Okada, like, ever so slightly outside of his comfort zone, like, really trying to take the kid's head off with strikes, and, like, Okada actually responds in kind, and, like, he... He brings the heat. Um, the formula is switched up. There's so much energy in f- from this like Osaka crowd. This is this might be my favorite crowd in all of 2016. Um, it's hot all the way through. It builds and builds and builds. It makes you. It reminds me a whole lot of um, the Ishii versus Tanahashi G1 match from the 2013 G1, where it was sort of like Ishii's coming out party, um, where I think they were in Ishii's hometown actually. Um, they built it so that you are like holy shit Ishii might actually win this match and then he beats Tanahashi with the Steiner screwdriver and and the place goes bananas and here it's like oh my god maybe Ishii's gonna beat the IWGP heavyweight champion and I watched this um I watched this like last week after watching it live and watching it live I thought it was okay and I watched it this last week and I didn't remember what the finish was and when Ishii pinned Okada I went crazy i was just like oh my god this is this is great i love this and it was um it really got me going not not a whole lot of wrestling matches these days like get me as excited as this one did yeah this was um i had the tanahashi match higher because mm. i kind of enjoy the story of him getting close but not overcoming uh-huh. but ishii beating okada is a is a really great moment it's awesome and it, you know, we kind of, we kind of mentioned it on Twitter when we talked about um when we talked a couple of weeks ago about um the upcoming Okada versus Minoru Suzuki match. Yes, is that like certain people kind of force Okada to you know for lack of a better term like toughen up, mm-hmm. switch it up. Yeah, like you know cut all the I guess like um bullshit formulaic stuff out. Yeah, and Ishii is one of those guys that's like no. I'm not sitting here letting you do your rainmaker pose. I'm gonna throw uh-huh. you in the face. We're not. That's doing such a that. great. That's such a great moment too because they do the the crash zoom outward yeah. on the camera. Like they're just expecting him to do the rainmaker pose, and so you get the camera zooming out so quickly to see Ishii just clobber him down. <laughs> Dude, it's like he's like, no, we're not doing this today. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Yeah, this is a fantastic match. Uh, you said you having an Okada match that much higher. Yeah, that's super high. <laughs> yeah, so man, look, I'm. Totally okay with that. Uh, so my 13 is a match you just mentioned. The Revival versus DIY from NXT's TakeOver Toronto. Okay, let me scroll back up to it. Um, now, you thought this one was better than the Brooklyn match. Could you tell me why? Well, one is because Johnny Gargano was playing base in peril mm-hmm. like he should yes. be. Yes. It, it should not be Tommaso Ciampa. And one, I just really enjoy a lot of the little things that are going yes. on around this match. Like, um, the Revival wearing black and pink and coming out in leather jackets. Mm-hmm. They do the heart attack at one point? They do the heart attack. Like, there's a whole bunch of little nods going on that in the midst of all of these crazy sequences that may get lost. Mm. I like the way they spaced out the falls. The first fall and the way they set that up with um, the blind tag and then Wilder coming in and um, catching Gargano in one of the nastiest shatter machines I can ever recall seeing. It's so gross. <laughs> um, the second fall, I think, is super unheralded, even by people that think this match is like the best match of the year. Yeah. Because the way this ends is that the revival kind of get done in by their own cheating. Mm-hmm. You know, like Dash Wilder is distracting the referee, but in turn, Gargano and Ciampa 
you know, um, hit their finisher on Dawson. And, you know, because the referee's distracted, he's not telling either one of the guys that got the ring. Totally. It feels like a moment where they're, um, they outthunk themselves, essentially. Yeah. In the, in the third fall, man, there's so much going on here. It's bedlam. The, the um, spot where Scott Dawson um, gets the title belt and puts it up. Uh, Johnny Gargano's about to do the Listo kick. Yeah, it's a really cool moment. I like that spot a lot. Gargano is, like, selling the hell out of his leg. And Dawson just has that smirk on his face, like, yeah, we got him again. <laughs> you know, at, when that happened, I was totally convinced that um, the Revival was about to win that match. And they play off the fact that Gargano tapped out to the reverse figure four at Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. tap out this time. He actually makes it to the ropes. It's, uh, they do an, another nasty chop block, which was probably the <laughs> most gruesome looking one they had did. Oh my God. I, like, I can name on one hand, probably the amount of spots I've seen in my life that were more brutal than that. <laughs> as someone, as someone who has had serious knee problems for several years now, that made me weep it was so rough to watch like dude he just takes his he, he just takes his knee out completely it's just rough. looking at it like whoop there goes his ACL <laughs> and uh smartly they don't like Gargano doesn't get back up off the mat until the match is over after that it's yeah. like really smart that they planned it out that way that they don't do something that would like totally ruin the psychology of that you know, there's some finisher stealing, which I always pop for. The Revival is, like, mockingly about to do DIY finisher to them. Mm-hmm. And then um, they wind up getting hit with the Shatter Machine, and that leads to a crazy near fall that the crowd goes nuts for. Uh-huh. And this is well say about why the match isn't higher, because some people, this is, like, top ten, no-brainer, even number totally. one. Totally. It's because, as a team, I have no attachment to DIY. Oh, Interesting. I, I, I don't either, and I thought I was kind of alone in that. No, I to be honest, to be like completely honest with you, I don't even think they're that good of a team. Like, Yikes. I don't really care for DIY. Mm-hmm. So when they're winning this match, and Gargano has him in the um, Gargano escape, and Champa has him in the bridging Fujiwara, mm-hmm. it's just like that should be a really emotional moment for people, especially because Revival's doing this thing where they're holding the other one's hand and telling mm-hmm. them not to tap. It's really cute. Yeah, it's like a really um, it's a moment that would only work for some teams, and because revival yes. kind of has that, it's because the revival kind of has like that bro vibe. Yes, that it works for them. But man, like I said, if I had any emotional attachment to DIY, this match would be higher. But I just don't. Totally, I totally echo that sentiment. Um, and I do, I do like it a lot, and I, I think more so than most WWE matches, this really. Uh, evidences the progression that these two teams had from their previous match, especially in Gargano himself. Um, and I like it a lot. I think, I think like, this is something I'll talk about more when we get to the Brooklyn match. Um, I think this match is more obvious than the Brooklyn match, and its smaller touches and building blocks are a little less subtle. And the finish is kind of goofy. It works in this situation, especially with, with the Revival being who they are. Um, but, like... I don't know. It didn't hit me nearly as hard, though. I still, I still really love it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think this match had a lot of subtleties, and I don't know. I'm a person that always likes callbacks, so Definitely. I'm a, there's so, tons so, of them here. Yeah, so I'd always be a, a person that prefers um, the second or third match to the first one because mm-hmm. they have more to work off of. Sure, definitely. So, like, that's the reason why I always like go. I guess prefer stuff like that, but yeah, you know, co- somewhat controversially, I have 
Toronto and Brooklyn, like almost like sixty or seventy spots away from each other. Yeah, that really surprised me. Yeah, but that just kind of you know go, goes back to the fact that I really, really have a problem with Tommaso Ciampa playing face in peril. It's uh, it's an interesting problem that I know a lot of people just wouldn't care about, but I totally get where you're coming from with it. All right, so what's your twelve? Uh, my twelve is another New Japan match in my highest ranked New Japan match of the year, and God damn it, did Yoshihashi have my highest ranked New Japan match of the year? Yes, he did. <laughs> it's him and Shinsuke Nakamura taking on AJ Styles and Kenny Omega from New Year's Dash. Okay, so I remember you posting about it on Twitter, but I didn't think mm-hmm. you got it this high. Now, this is interesting because essentially this was almost more angle than match, or the, yes. or that the angle was more important. So yes. could you just explain what got it the, higher? The angle part of this match is longer than the match itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, firstly, I, I do want to say you did see me talk about it on Twitter, and it's because I recently rewatched it after having not seen it since it happened live. Uh, and a lot of people were talking about it, like it was the best New Japan match of the year. And I was like, okay, I, I tend to miss things on my first watch. I'll give it a rewatch. And holy cow, did it blow me away. Um, part of it is due to, I think, this is a very important match in yeah. New Japan history. And it will prove to be in the coming years. And it's sort of noteworthy for that reason. But um, on top of that, maybe it's... um. Maybe it's just the intimate and smarky nature of Korokin, my favorite place for wrestling in the world, uh, making for, you know, a more lively environment than the half-filled Tokyo Dome. But, like, I enjoyed this so much more than anything on Wrestle Kingdom. It's, like, despite some foibles, most of which I think revolve around Omega, like, transitioning into this new wacky over-the-top heel character, um, this match is, like, an utter delight. It's only 12 minutes long. It's jam-packed with speedy, stiff, tight action that reminds me of why people love this promotion and these performers. Everyone puts in a ton of effort but doesn't, like, totally overreach. They just stick to a tried-and-true formula of, like, snug simplicity, and they put their all into it and just knock it out of the park. Yeah, I have nothing to say since I haven't watched it, you know, since it aired. Sure. So, but I do agree that it is a match that will prove to be very important, not just for Kenny mm. Omega and where his career went after that, but for the fact that it's AJ Styles' last match in the promotion uh-huh. and it's Shinsuke Nakamura being pinned by a junior on his way out. Uh-huh. This is, um, it's like, this is a really major turning point in New Japan history, I think. Yeah. Like, it, it's, obviously we're, we're we're only like a year removed from it and it's hard to tell uh, exactly how far the rippling effect goes, but like, I mean, if we're just this... if we're just looking at how things have changed uh-huh. in just a year, we can go from Kenny Omega, yeah, you know, kicking AJ Styles out to uh-huh. main eventing Wrestle Kingdom. So that yeah. is a big seismic change. There's no way Kenny Omega is going 47 minutes in the Tokyo Dome main event without this match, right? And it's like, I think he's a little he's a little over the top here. It's funny, like. Um, in his post-match promo, he's, like, a little too clever for his own good, I think. Like, playing this clearly inspired by Kefka from Final Fantasy VI character, which I should love because I love Final Fantasy VI, but kind of grates on me a little. Um, him doing this is, like, a little over the top, and it kind of works in the context of him taking over the Bullet Club and kicking AJ out and ascending to this higher role. Um, but it's interesting that, like... This match is so tight and 
spirited and it's what I want more of in New Japan, but it's also where I can pinpoint New Japan going way overboard with the style that I don't like, specifically based around Kenny Omega. We'll return after these messages. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Voice of Ring of Honors, Kevin Kelly here. I just want to make sure you're all subscribed to all of our great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. Now, it's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search for and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, Place to Be Nation pop feed, pro wrestling only feed, and, of course, the Kevin Kelly Show feed, which includes the full archives of my podcast. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And, of course, as always, enjoy all the great action of Ring of Honor Wrestling and everything presented to you on placetobenation.com. Nation's JT Rizzero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceTomination.com, and we offer them to you across two great feeds. On the PlaceTomination Wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast with our famous vintage wall pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with the smash hit clotheslines and headlines our steady veteran main event, and the beloved monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on all pro wrestling super shows. Relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, the always contentious Dangerous Alliance podcast, and Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. On our very popular Placement Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, NBA Team, Lucha Undead, Geek and Sassy, and a veritable podcast heaven for comic fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both of those feeds on iTunes and rate and leave feedback for us as well. All of these shows plus others available at PlaceTomation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceTomation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on the right-hand side of our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Rock, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTomation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The PWO PTBN feed has changed its name, now known simply as Pro Wrestling Only, so it should be easier to find and indeed to say. All of your favorite shows are still here, including Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, This Week in Wrestling, and many, many more including our full archives of tremendous content. So make sure you subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed today. Now back to the show. Alright, so my number 12 is Brian Kendrick versus Kota Ibushi from the Cruiserweight Classic. Uh, and I did not have this one. This match is such a uh, simple but interesting story. And it revolves around the fact that Brian Kendrick throughout this entire tournament was the KG veteran mm-hmm. who's essentially on his last chance. Mm-hmm. He was in WWE when he was young. He had a good run, but he got released. He had issues that go beyond wrestling. And mm-hmm. this was sort of his last chance to live his dream. If I can recall 
the line correctly that they did in the video package for this. <laughs> Hold on, I'm looking for it right now. But it's like a really impactful line. And it's the pressure is me seeing the light dimming. Mm-hmm. If I don't win this, my dream is over. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of haunting. Like, yeah. this guy who gave his life to wrestling, if he doesn't win this tournament, he thinks that his career is done. Yeah. And this kind of gives us the end of the Brian Kendrick arc in the Cruiserweight Classic. It's a sad and emotional one, but kind of gratifying at the same time. But it, it's also, like, super realistic. It's mm-hmm. Kendrick is a man that's chasing redemption, but he doesn't get it. Like, he gets close, and it's something where he gets close, but he doesn't really reach it. But it feels, you know, like the, like the Tenzan story in the G1. Totally. You see, like, the ten, the problem with the Tenzan story is I feel like they didn't tell it as emotionally as they could have. Yeah, they totally... I think they, like, very much dropped the ball with it. Like, yeah. after the first three days or so, uh, after Tenzan lost, like, two matches, it was like, okay, we're done. Yeah, it feels like they could have, you know... This feels like that angle done right. hmm And he, like, you know, Kendrick wins against Tony Nice and Ronnie Mendoza. And he runs... He runs Forgot about Mendoza. <laughs> he runs into this buzzsaw named Kota Ibushi. Who was oh, yeah. presented as the odds-on favorite in the tournament. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, Brian Kendrick got these wins. How is he actually going to pull this one off? And he doesn't, but he tries. He yeah. works on Kota Ibushi's neck. Which they... Well, uh, well, he sort of did win the match, if uh, if certain <laughs> if certain results are to be believed. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. That goes to the editing team, too. I think they did a really good job making it seem like this was exactly how this is supposed to go. What a fucking weird outcome. <laughs> yeah, but either way, like, you know, you know, Kendrick did try. He worked on Kota Ibushi's uh-huh. injured neck, uh-huh. which commentary pointed out multiple times to, you know, let you know that Kota Ibushi has had surgery on it. He's mm-hmm. been dealing with this for months. You know, Ryan Kendrick does a sliced bread. Mm-hmm. You know, something he hadn't done the entire tournament. Um, he does a burning hammer. A goddamn which, burning hammer. Which, in any other use would probably annoy me but for the fact that brian kendrick is so desperate yeah that he is doing a burning hammer yeah yeah i fully buy into that because he totally. has nothing yeah. else to do yeah like no, he, i get that and kendrick loses and the post match and everything is like super sad and emotional brian kendrick i mean daniel bryan was mm. on commentary and oh, throughout the yeah. entire run he had been unabashedly supporting kendrick yeah. And when Kendrick loses, like Brian is like openly weeping on commentary. Did like, you see their um their backstage video that WWE yeah. put up? Yeah, it was hard to watch. Yeah, like you know he's like you know breaking down in tears, talking about how he's so proud of Brian. Mm-hmm. And they go to the ring and have this like you know huge embrace, and it's very like you know happy, mm-hmm. but at the same time I'm looking at it as like man on below the surface I feel like it's kind of sad because like Brian Kendrick his fear was not living his dream anymore yeah and then Daniel Bryan who had his dream cut short comes out and he's the one comforting him yeah it's it's really authentic and you know it's that is the perfect way to like strike 12 on a Cinderella story Mm -hmm. and you know I love this match it's like a cruel outcome but it's harsh (laughs) like it's like Uh. Like, it's a cruel end to a story, but that harsh reality is what, like, what makes it cut so deep. Yeah. I remember when uh, 
SCS, the Sports Entertainment Shrinks podcast, and myself, when we were running down the CWC, we were looking at the brackets and trying to determine who was going to win. And we were all like super into the Brian Kendrick story based on that bracketology special they put out. And when we realized that he was in the same half of the bracket as Kota Ibushi, we were like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a bummer. You know, when, you know, I guess this is my, this is a match where I could probably have it higher mm. if Brian Kendrick didn't go to the main roster and become an integral part of the Cruiserweight <sighs> division. Yeah, so and in a weird, bad way, too. Yeah, it's like, so it's, like, weird how it played out. Yeah. But, like, I'm not going to say it hurt the match for me, but sure, I'll say that if it kind of played out like this was, like, legitimately it for Brian Kendrick, mm. then it would probably, you know, resonate even more where, man, this guy really didn't get another chance. Do you think this was Kendrick's best match ever? God, um... Because it's hard to... It's hard to imagine something else that you've put at, like, number 12 in your, in your you know, match of the year list, you know? Um, maybe his match with Jay Briscoe. Okay. I haven't um, seen it, but I've heard good things, yeah. That match is fucking insane. Um, that's from 2002. You should check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, 2002, like, 17-year-old Jay Briscoe. <laughs> Dude, that match rules. <laughs> All right, so what's your 11? Uh, my 11 was a match that we were just talking about earlier. It's the Revival versus DIY from NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 2. Electric Boogaloo. And I had this at 93. <sighs> it's kind of blown my mind, brother. <laughs> um, there's, there's an old adage that says that you never want to find out how the sausage is made. And it applies to like a wide variety of things in life, not the least of which is wrestling. When you... Um, when you begin to learn just how wrestling works, both in and out of the ring, you lose, you know, you you lose a lot of the magic and a lot of the allure. And, like, certain things you pick up more, and it adds to your enjoyment of it. But you never get that, like, childlike wonder that you used to have. Um, generally, it's not so fun to be cognizant of the process of creation. Um, this match is, like, a textbook American tag match. You know, dominating heels, cut off the ring, face in peril, big comeback and hot tag, near falls as things break down, so on and so forth. On an athletic level, there's not, like, a lot of terribly impressive spots, and it's not hard to imagine um, just any pair of indie tag teams replicating this match move for move and achieving roughly the same response. But what sets this apart is the little touches. It's the selling and the facials and the body language and vocalization of these four men. It's the heart and effort and pantomime and drama that they put in. Uh, they put into even the smallest of movements. It's how they play off of each other and this super hot crowd in Brooklyn that is just like salivating in their seats. Like I've been, I've been watching wrestling long enough to know exactly how and why this match works. Like I understand just how the sausage is made here, but like, in this case, it doesn't make it any less delicious. Yeah, and I think I've already um, spoke a bunch of times about this match. All my issues are on it, so they don't have you know anything to say on it, really. I think mm. it's a great match, so I don't want anyone sure. to think I don't like it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, just, you know, if anyone's going to ask me why I dislike something, I have to be honest and say, Tommaso Ciampa as face in peril bothers me a lot. I get it, yeah. No, I get it. I totally do. Um, I... I almost think that I like it more for that reason, though, because it's not so typical. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I appreciate, like, the changing of the formula. I appreciate, like, 
the changing of gears that the revival do late in the match where they realize they're not going to survive a bomb fest and so they immediately just like go right after gargano's knee and beat on it until they get the submission victory in like a minute like it really it says a lot about those guys' characters it's great psychology this is like probably gargano's best performance ever in a match and i guarantee you like the best one he'll ever have um there's the awesome near fall with uh I think DIY hit their finish and Dawson put Dash's foot on the ropes and uh, my boy Drake Younger didn't notice until he'd already counted the three. There's um, lovely character work from the revival, like when Dash falls in the ring to <laughs> have the referee distraction. Like, I I love it. Like, there's a lot going on here and I, I understand why you're not as enamored by it, but it, it really did a lot for me. All right, so... My number 11 is Mustafa Ali versus GPA from Freelance, Big Trouble in Wicker Park. This is a, this is a good match, and I'm kind of surprised it didn't make my top 100. Man, this was a match that I already knew Mustafa Ali was great from mm. the stuff he had already done in the year. Yeah. But this solidified that this guy is just an amazing top tier in the world talent. Uh-huh. And then GPA, who's going to have to step up now with Mustafa Ali being gone. It proved that GPA could hang with the best. And mm. the thing about this is that throughout Mustafa Ali's run, he had been the valiant babyface, and he had been, you know, the valiant hero to end Isaiah Velasquez's um, reign of tyranny. Mm-hmm. But here, he's getting frustrated with GPA. And he not goes heel. But he's a lot more um, aggressive and upset that mm-hmm. GPA is trying to hang, trying to hang with him. Totally. And I'll say that comfortably, I think this is the best freelance match to happen so far. Granted, the promotion has only been around for about two, two three, and a half. Yeah, two, two and, and a half, half years. Yeah, two and a half years at this point. So yeah. they'll have more. Like you know, they have more chances to top this. But I thought they hit every level that they should have. Elevating GPA as a top star. Mustafa Very Ali, much so. Mustafa Ali in his first title defense, looking like a really tremendous champion. Uh, I don't know. For people that haven't seen this match, you have to kind of see it to believe <laughs> it because it's almost like structured as an epic because GPA hits his finish so many times and it gets kicked out of so many times. But it kind of fits because GPA is yeah. doing things, but everything he does just isn't good enough. Yeah. And Mustafa Ali just being his champion is uh, just making GPA, you know, he look he makes him look strong, but not too strong at the same time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, he makes him look like he's great, but he's not great enough to hang with the best in the world. But great enough that a couple months later, he's going to beat him for that title. Yeah. Which yeah. is, uh, it's an interesting thing that they've started to do in freelance, and I hope they continue to do that with, with a guy facing off against the champion in a one-on-one match and losing before beating him a couple months later. Um, I guess, like, the one nitpick is that, like, you know, in the aftermath, GPA kind of wins the title um, uh-huh. sooner than I would have liked. And again, that, be, that you know, WWE is calling Mustafa Ali sure. to go. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I would have liked the arc of GPA trying to prove himself to have played out longer. But, yep. you know, they kind of got forced into pulling the trigger on GPA sooner than I I think they would have. It's kind of nuts that when you think about it, Ali also was only in freelance for a year. 
Yeah, like that's the thing is like that's what makes his run and how we got into WWE so impressive because it's literally off the strength of one year. Basically, yeah. And it's off the strength of what he did in one promotion. It is like not like a I don't know, would you like what kind of feat would you call it? like it? I don't know, because in the year of 2016, where there's like a lot of crazy things that happen, that seems like one of the most incredible feats that took place in the year. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's a guy hitting the right notes and impressing the right people in the right places. Like, I don't think WWE was searching out those Gali Lucha Libre shows. <laughs> they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't checking out those Funky Monkey tapes. I definitely don't think they were checking out Funky Monkey, but... <laughs> Uh, it is it is interesting. There's a lot of crazy things that have happened in 2016 in wrestling, and uh, this was one of them. All right, so what's your 10? So we're in the top 10 now. Top 10. Um, this is... I don't even know how to approach these. We're, we're going to talk about these ones at length, uh, or at least I should hope so. <laughs> um, these are all matches that you and I sent to Voices of Wrestling for the Voices of Wrestling Match of the Year ballots that they've been doing for uh, like five years now, six years now. Um, and I wrote up little, I always write up notes for all these matches, but I wrote up like little blurbs specifically to send to Voices of Wrestling, and that's sort of what I'm basing some of these notes on. Uh, but my number 10 was my favorite Big Japan Match of the Year. Uh, it's one that happened early on that a lot of people latched onto. It's kind of goofy for some people, but it's one I totally bought into. It's Yuji Okabayashi versus Ryotohama. Wow, I'm glad you had this on your list because this. I remember at the moment, like in the moment when it was um, airing in the um, Piro on Demand stream, uh-huh. everyone was losing their minds for this. It's, it's like. It's the most compact, strong division main event in some time, and I, I sometimes complain in Big Japan as well as other big Japanese promotions about like going over the top in their main events. But this one's like it eschews excess for like effective authenticity, like making for um, one of the most exciting comebacks of 2016 that I saw in wrestling. Um, the valiant champion Okabayashi overcomes like his massive opponent through just sheer force of will, and I buy into it completely. As does this awesome Korokan crowd. It's like in um, in this time of like cynicism and insincerity in wrestling and just in life in general. Like it's it's really exhilarating to find something that I'm able to lose myself in so easily, and this match is one of those things. Yeah, this was a match that uh, kind of proved how great Okabayashi can be, uh-huh. even outside facing like the typical opponents like Ashuji Ishikawa, like Daisuke, like you, you know, even like some of the regulars in the strong division. So I don't know because Hama is a guy that some <laughs> people may not realize is actually really damn good. Yes, people maybe I don't want to say for good reason, but like people have a very specific idea of what Hama is due to his size which is kind of, I think, unwarranted. Yeah, because, you know, I think, kind of not even just, not even his size, like, you know, his face is, like, kind of, like, um, mm. you know, clean, and, like, he looks like a lovable, you know. You know <laughs> totally. You know, He's like, bubbly. You know, like, the way, like, you know, Shigehiro Irie looks. Totally. You, know, you yeah. wouldn't expect Irie to be some, you know, monster. <laughs> but Hama has the same thing where when he gets motivated, he can be a formidable mountain for someone to climb. Because mm-hmm. he's legitimately, like, someone of that size is hard to wrestle, yeah. let alone beat. Yeah. So, 
I'm glad you have this. I wasn't even expecting you to, you know, have this so high or even make your list at all. Um, I actually, I put it, I put off watching it for so long. I didn't watch it up until this month, but when I watched it, I just got so into it. And it's like, it's it's the little things, you know. It's like at one point, Hama does just a running uh, splash on the mat where Okabayashi's like sort of tilted on his side he's not fully on his back or on his side and because of that awkward angle Hama comes down on him weird and the crowd goes nuts for it because it's such an odd an odd angle but due to Hama's size it's like holy shit this is really dangerous and it's an awesome escalation there's a point where Hama starts climbing the ropes and the crowd's like oh and uh Okabayashi knows that if he takes whatever Hama's gonna do off the ropes that he's gonna die and so he fights up and clotheslines his ass, which is like <laughs> no, li- such... No, no, literally clotheslines his ass. Literally clotheslines his ass. And like on its face, it's so goofy and weird. But because of the situation and like all of the heart that Yuji puts into it, like you can't help but buy in. Like this is such... I- I- I've talked about authenticity so much, but this is like... Not for one second did I think this was a performance. This felt so real to me. Right, so my number 10 is probably the best match I've ever seen live. It's oh, Chris cool. Hero versus Zack Sabre Jr. from Evolve 60. Damn, I didn't even remember that we hadn't talked about this. Um, yeah, you had this on your list, right? Uh, I did. I'm going to check where I had it. I had it at number 28. All right, so... No, obviously there's live bias that's going to factor in here. But... Sure, but I mean, but that's an important thing to remember that watching wrestling live is how we should watch wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about it is that if it's me watching uh, the best in the world was mm-hmm. here at the time, and then like this match was also kind of the turning point in like me getting intrigued by Zach as a character. Really? Because. Up until this point, obviously the Chris Hero, Zack Sabre Jr. feud have been going on for about a year or a little over a year at this point. But there's something about when Zack Sabre Jr. and Chris Hero tangle up Mm -hmm. that Chris Hero kind of feels insulted when he faces him. Mm -hmm. He kind of feels like this guy is like challenging um, his place in the world. Totally, because he is. You know, Chris Hero has seen Zack Sabre Jr. since he was young and now he sees it and now he sees this guy trying to become the best in the world or the biggest name on the indies and he's like um dude i'm still here (laughs) like it kind of feels like um heroes insulted that zach thinks he can be on that level and the thing is it has a student versus teacher dynamic but it's not Mm -hmm. in a way where it's like um uh yeah i taught you everything but I didn't teach you everything that I know. It's not something mm. like that. It's like, it's a guy that is still um, in his prime, essentially. Totally, totally. He's been around for a while, but he's just now hitting a stride versus the guy that um, is trying to reach that level. And there's something, um, I guess, more um, competitive about it because these two go at it. And when Chris Hero faces Zach, he kind of has even more scathing trash talk than usual. Yes. Like, his trash talk to Zach is very, very um, venomous. And he mm-hmm. gets very insulted when people cheer for Zack Sabre Jr. over him. Mm-hmm. I remember this um, very vividly because I was cheering um, for Zack Sabre Jr., I think. And then 
So Chris Hero comes over to our section of the audience. I was in the second row. And he starts arguing with the guys in front of me. And he literally just blows his nose on this guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm losing my shit. And this guy's like, you just blew snot on my brother. <laughs> but, yeah, this is a fantastic match. I thought Chris Hero bullied the hell out of Zach. It's one of Zach's best performances selling. Yeah, this is like, I, I thought this match was made based on uh, the performance that Zach gives. Like, Zach really sells his ass off during this. Totally. He hits the best PK I've ever seen. Yeah, probably. In this match. It's it's bonkers. <laughs> and Chris Hero, like he usually does with Zach, um, murders him in a very, mm-hmm. very angry and um, impactful way with the Tombstone pile drivers. Yep. And, I mean, Zach is always a guy that takes those pile drivers like it is absolutely killing him. Like you mentioned totally. the, a, the one he took in the Jim Lionel tournament. He takes ones here where... He just kind of goes limp. Uh-huh. And I just love the way he sells those pile drivers. And uh, I said, best match I've ever seen live. Chris Hero and Zack Sabre Jr. continuing their feud. And that's a match that really started to intrigue me about, you know, maybe this Zack Sabre Jr. needs to be in the conversation about when we talk about these, like, you know, mm-hmm. top-tier guys. Because I always liked him. Mm-hmm. Because, but I never thought he was, like, you know, top five in the world. How would you compare how he performs live to how he performs on tape? Live, you get more entranced in the fact that, um, you know, he's always been, pre- he's been presented as, as a technical wizard for like the last, um, what, three or four Couple years. years, you know, three yeah. years maybe. But he wants you, you know, seen him on tape a few times. It kind of loses his luster for some of the spots he does. When you see it live, you really do wonder how the hell did he pull some of the stuff he did off? <laughs> sure. Oh no, like it is a thing where, you know, Sometimes when you've been watching wrestling too much, stuff loses that magic. Totally. When you're watching it live, you know, I can't help you be wrapped up. It's like, dude, like, how did he catch Chris Hero <laughs> in that Kimura? How did he find a way to get that triangle choke in? Like, it's little things like that where you're still keeping me, um, like, the curtain is still closed. Like, I'm mm. not seeing everything behind the scenes on how something works. Mm-hmm. And Zach really is good at doing that live. He even did that well with, in, with the Cody Rhodes match that a lot of people didn't like. But live, I, it wasn't bad. Like, you know? Yeah, I was like saying, like, this wasn't a bad match. Like, Zach did his best to try to get a good match at Cody Rhodes. <laughs> and Cody sort of, like, held his own on the mat. It wasn't as horrible as it could have been. Yeah, it could have been way worse. Yeah. Um. So, what's your number nine? <laughs> My number nine is a match that I don't think anybody put this high. And if I'm the only person who, uh, who voted for this in the Voices of Wrestling Match of the Year poll... I uh, would not be surprised. It's Jack Gallagher versus Timothy Thatcher from Progress Chapter 26. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. This took me by surprise as much as it's taking you by surprise right now. But it's um, it's the kind of shit that I go gaga for, man. It's like, it's simple and effective. It's beautiful in its brutality. It's, it's, uh, it's the pride and anger of a foreigner leading to him falling victim to this mega talented hometown boy. This match was just like an awesome technical contest. I had my eyes, my eyes like glued to the screen the whole time as it unfolds move by move, each move, like uh, progressing the narrative in a clear and captivating way. There's, there's no wasted motion here. Everything matters, which is why I think the match itself matters. Yeah, I remember watching this because I've seen all the progress shows that happened in 2016. And this uh-huh. was on the same show that had um, Haskins versus Skrull. Yes, so, there was a lot on this show. I, I thought it was um, 
it was interesting that such a straightforward, hardcore grapple fuck match was able to enamor this crowd just as much as like six thirties in dildos. Yeah, so I think it's a great match, and uh, I kind of wish that there was um, more Thatcher that happened in progress in twenty sixteen. Totally, totally. Because yeah, I thought he impressed, and Jack Gallagher. Man, it's going to be one of the bigger what ifs. In, yeah. Um, on the British indie scene, is like, what if no Jack Gallagher didn't get fucked up? Because dude, he was getting so over. He's he, one of those guys that I wish had a, a Japan run. A Japan run if he just got to stay a little bit longer and get in the progress title scene because he didn't uh-huh. even get he didn't get to do anything really. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was just he was just like really good uh, for a little while in WWE. He's like, hey, I want that, which is uh, what they do a lot. <laughs> Right. But you're right that I this was like Thatcher every once in a while he did it once in Bola in 2015 and he does it again here where he becomes more like a human being as opposed to like a grizzled grapple bot yeah uh, and like he interacts with the crowd a little bit more and it proves to be his undoing in a lot of ways and it's an interesting thing that it, I wish I could see more Thatcher's facial expressions are always great always. but it's especially great here when Gallagher does the um kind of like Romero special stomp on his knees mm-hmm. and Gal- and um, Thatcher's face is like, um, he just like saw a ghost or something. Yeah. It was tremendous stuff. I love Thatcher, man. <laughs> it's such a brutal match. Like it's, I can't look at a match like this and imagine how people were like, Oh, Thatcher sucks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause he's still killing it. It's just the evolved title scene for a variety of reasons is not lighting the world on fire. Yeah. That was like my point throughout the entire year is like, like Thatcher's been great. It's mm-hmm. just that Evolve sucks if mm-hmm. I'm using him. So yeah, that's it there. But alright, my number nine is Monster Express versus Berserk from Dragon Gate October twelfth. The five on four unit disbands match. Unit disbands, Captain Falls, revival mm-hmm. match. Um Alright, so should should I explain the step before I actually talk about the match? That probably would be useful, sure. Alright, so essentially this was, a, this was like, I guess, supposed to be a 5-on-5, but Peter Casa, um, um, for some reason, was injured or something. He got taken out. Mm. Um, the captain fall step is that this match can only end if the captain gets pinned. And in this case, the captain's on the respective teams were Akira Tozawa and Shingo Takagi. Which is interesting because uh, I think it's... If, Monster Express has always been an interesting stable in that they sort of made decisions together. There wasn't like a clear leader, but I think Yoshino's uh, veteran experience always made him the the, the more default leader. And so yeah. Tozawa here on his way out becoming captain is is an interesting thing. And the revival thing is that um someone can be brought back into the match if someone from the opposing team gets pinned. Yeah. So. There's a lot going on here, but I promise. So you have to you have to get a string of pinfalls on the same team in order to win. Yes, so I promise it's a it's a lot less complicated than it sounds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I thought this was a fantastic uh, unit disbands match, and I think it's impressive for the fact that everyone knew that Monster Express was losing. Totally, but they it's, still. I thought they were going to lose in February. In the first unit disbands match of the really? year. Really? I thought it was like pretty clear that Dia Harts was done. I, I um I don't know, I'm one of those people who was always like Tazawa's gonna win the Dreamgate this year, man. And I thought that was <laughs> where it was gonna start, where Shingo was going to kill Monster Express and he was gonna kick off this like um this several month 
run towards finding revenge on Shingo, but they went with Yamato instead. Yeah, and I think the fact that they were able to get so much emotion um, out of a match where the outcome really wasn't in doubt is very mm-hmm. impressive. The pace mm-hmm. they work, the callback say our manager squeeze in into this match where there's so much going on. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Shachi Hoko boy pinned Shingo Takagi again in this match. So good. And then Shingo comes back in the match and he kills him. Yeah. <laughs> and one spot in particular I know that a lot of people loved is when Tazao was about to get his head taken off by a lariat from Shingo. Then Yoshino pushes Tazao out the way and mm-hmm. takes the bullet for him, essentially. Yeah. And the reason why that spot is like so impactful and it works is because one is Yoshino taking the bullet for the leader, and if Tazawa got hit, then there's a good chance Monster Express would be done. Yeah. But it also comes down to the fact that Monster Express is this unit based on friendship. Yep. So Yoshino taking the bullet for Tazawa like that makes sense more than it would for any other stable besides maybe the Jimmies. But again, yeah, the, like Monster Express is literally based on friendship. Yeah, it was. It's a very emotional uh, stable Monster Express, which, um, interestingly enough, like was the reason a whole lot of people got into Dragon Gate. And I think you're one of those people, right? Um, not Monster Express necessarily. I got in when Tazawa came back and was in Blood Warriors and stuff. Oh, uh, okay, so a little earlier then. Yeah, yeah. So either way, it was Tazawa. Yeah, that was the reason why I was in the Dragon Gate. So his the like Blood Warriors wasn't his stable. Mm-hmm. But I always view Monster Express as his thing. Yeah, very much so. Founding member, very central to it. Yeah. Yeah, so this is very emotional because I'm seeing this guy that I know is leaving in this stable that I love is about to die. Yeah. But it's not like he goes down without a fight. This mm-hmm. um, ending um, sequence with him and Shingo is fantastic work. And Shingo being the one to end Monster Express after last year, he said he was done with this friendship club bullshit. Yeah. It was um, very poetic, and again, something that works if you pay attention to Dragon Gate, because Shingo, who left because of all of the nonsense and Shachi Hoko Boy being being even in the stable, mm-hmm. Tazawa and Yoshino being obsessed with friendship and all this other stuff, it feels like a match where Shingo actually did what he said he would do last mm-hmm. year. It's a yeah. kind of a really great payoff. Yeah, a sad one, but... You know, um, one that's going to lead to hopefully bigger and better things. Yeah, hopefully when Tozawa isn't, you know, not being used on 205 Live. Swear to God. (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) All right, so what's your eight? My eight is uh, another match uh, (laughs) that I love a lot more than I think most people do. Uh, But it's one I was surprised to hear that uh, still made it onto your list. It's Asuka versus Bailey from NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 2. Electric Boogaloo. I'm going to call it that every time. All right. I had this at 33. Yes, which, I mean, it kind of blew my mind that you had it on there at all. Uh, Because this is one of those things that, like, I didn't hear anybody else buzzing about, uh, but I fell head over heels for. At the time, I was, like, like baffled that everyone was just, like, completely dismissing Big Lee versus Asuka when I'm like, Uh what the hell? Like, they just told an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Like, I get that DIY Revival just had a tremendous match. Yeah. And granted, like, that was just in your, what? Where was that match for you? That was 11. Like, yeah, that match barely missed your top 10. Totally. So it's like, 
I understand that's a fantastic match, but people didn't even bother with Oscar versus Bailey, and it really yeah. bugged me. It's uh, I mean, there's a variety of reasons for it. It's not necessarily the most blow away match uh, in the ring. It had that death spot coming after like this this really hot tag team match. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons why people maybe didn't see it uh, as good as it was, or as good as I think it was, but. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons why I loved it so much, and I think it's because it's like it's probably the greatest character exploration in WWE in years. It's like this young girl dethroned from her place atop the pack, like running headlong into a match she is just absolutely doomed to lose, frustrated by the fact that she failed in the first place, unwilling to back down from her game plan. She's like she's defeated before the match even begins. She's like completely outgunned and outmatched and outclassed by Asuka, but yet she fights, you know? Yeah. It was like at takeover Dallas, Asuka ripped the heart and soul out of NXT when she uh-huh. like, uh, like very abruptly put away Bailey. I remember uh-huh. at the moment people were just like, what the fuck just happened with a, with a KO finish too. Yeah. And people were really either um, shocked or left a bad taste in their mouths. It deflated mm-hmm. the crowd. And she kind of ripped the heart out of NXT. And it made Asuka look unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And then it put Bailey back in the position where, where she thrives the most, and that's being the underdog. Mm-hmm. Where being she has vulnerable. To scratch, yeah, where she has to scratch and claw and get everything she works for. And Bailey, even coming into this match, she struggled to return. She got um, destroyed by Nia Jax like a week or two after this. Mm-hmm. She came back and finally beat Nia Jax to come back and get a title shot. Mm-hmm. But either way, Bailey, even though she's motivated, like you said, she's not ready. But Asuka is a you know warrior at this point. Asuka has this swagger that no one else has. Like Asuka is always cocky, mm-hmm. but she's especially cocky tonight. And like, why wouldn't she be? She she's already beat Bailey. Yeah. So it's like she has no reason to even take her more seriously than she does. But Bailey doesn't back down. She tries her hardest to face Asuka. Mm. And it's a, it's a, you know, I use the term poetic and symbolic and all these yeah. things, but this is one of those matches where Bailey tries to get the fight of her life. She does things that are out of character. She gets in Asuka's face and tells her to slap her. <laughs> she takes um, a kick to the head, gets right back up, and slaps Asuka in it's the such, face. It's such a good no sell too because she's not totally no selling but there's such fire behind it I love it like she's so defiant yeah and then Asuka puts her down and it's Bailey losing and having her last match at NXT Mm. in the same place where she had her greatest triumph yeah and it's happening right in front of the other um three four horsewomen where where um Charlotte Becky and Sasha are all in the crowd and Bailey, who was the one left behind, is having her last match, and yeah, if it's a really um emotional thing where you, I mean, the Barclays Center really is central to the Bailey um arc, and mm-hmm. having her story kind of end here was the perfect way to do it. Yeah, it's it's not it's not going to blow you away with like the action that it delivers, even though I think the action is is kind of underrated in this case, but it's. It's something that tells a greater story that has been um, very much overlooked, and I think it's well worth revisiting. Yeah, and just, you know, I'm looking at my review that I did for the um, Wrestling of Words right now, and in closing for the for that match, I said, last year we saw all four horsewomen standing tall. 
Mm. This time, the only one left standing sang her swan song in an arena where the most important moment of her life took place. Yeah. This is the end of Bailey and NXT. What a truly beautiful and poetic way to go out. It doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. It's great stuff. I, I wish more people were into it. Yeah, so my number eight is Io Shirai versus Mai Iwatani from December 22nd. Back-to-back women's matches. Tell me about it, Q. Now, I mentioned their match from May 15th. Mm-hmm. That was, I believe, my number 30. But this is coming off of the fact that Io Shirai just turned on Mayu. Mm-hmm. And not just turned on her. We mentioned ripping the heart and soul out of NXT with Bayley and Asuka. <laughs> yeah. She ripped the heart out of stardom when uh-huh. she just punched Mayu right in the face. And, you know, it was during their tag league and Io and Mayu were teaming and they were facing um, Yoko Bito and Kairi Hojo in the finals mm-hmm. and Io turned on her during the match and post-match. Mayu was, like, crawling to her and Io pushes her down and she gets on the mic and says she turned on her because Mayu is weak. Mm-hmm. And, man, that's like a punch in the gut. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> everything about that is just like, Io is such a complete asshole and Mayu is like um, left in the ring being comforted by Bito and Hojo and she's like I'm a winner she's like uh, just like mumbling it but she's like so like traumatized by the fact that EO just did this to her that she's just kind of like so shaken and she's like mumbling I'm a winner and she's not some loser she's not some punk or geek that she's no winner and going into this I thought that Mayu was gonna win really yeah, I thought that Mayu was going to win, considering the EO rumors. Um, that's true, yeah. That's a good point. So I thought that Mayu was going to win here, but I'm actually glad that she did it in a way, mm. because this match was another, I guess, step in the story of Mayu proving herself. Totally. Where EO comes in super cocky and arrogant. She puts out a sarcastic handshake, and <laughs> she's wearing like um, different makeup. Uh-huh. She's got her of- blonde hair now as opposed to black hair. Yeah, it's like, you know, a different Io Shirai that's even more cocky than um, she was before. And granted, she was kind of cocky even before this. <laughs> Super, yeah, yeah. But this is taken to another level. And uh, I thought both of them put in a fantastic performance. Io was a heel. is just super dismissive and arrogant. Mayu is fiery and you want her to succeed. And uh-huh. this match is below 20 minutes. Which yeah. is, uh, you know, for my list, it's probably the shortest match um, that I have like this high, totally. Well, no, I have Kendra versus Bushi, so like the second, the second shortest. But okay, it's something where they pack in so much stuff in a short amount of time. They pack in so much action, so much callback, so much emotion, mm-hmm. so much violence, so much brutality. You know, Io Shirai puts her away with the damnedest rolling German suplexes. <laughs> that I... My God, the rolling suplexes that Io hits on Mayu during the ending of this are absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. And man, this is a match that I think, you know, has a lot of crossover appeal. Like if anyone who wasn't um, used to stardom watched this match and they just saw these two go out uh-huh. and just destroy each other, they'd love this. Yeah. It's just one of those classic Joshi matches where like two women go out there and, and throw it all down. It's, it's real rough and stiff and quick and fast. And yeah, it's good stuff. All right. So what's your number seven? Uh, my number seven is... I don't think you brought it up yet. 
It's uh, it's a match you and I both love. It's the third part of the Skillogy. Zack Sabre Jr. and Jonathan Gresham facing off in a two out of three falls match at Beyond Wrestling's American Rana. Yeah, I have this higher. Interesting, okay. Alright, so my number seven is Yamato versus Shingo Takagi from Dragon Gate Kobe World. This one didn't make my list. So this is the culmination of Yamato's story of getting redemption on Shingo Takagi. Uh-huh. You know, it was a um, six, five-month thing. Well, with, um, on top of already being something that's been going on way back since, like, New Hazard. This yeah. is this is just the most recent iteration of, like, a ten-year-long story. Yeah, and Yamato, we already mentioned the Dead or Alive cage match that kind of mm-hmm. spawned the direction that we went in now. And it's Yamato and Shingo going out there and having... The best Kobe World main event, I think, in a while, actually. Um, Probably, yeah. They go out there, and I think it's a really focused match. They both do tremendous selling, which is something that <laughs> Dragon Geek gets a lot of some, gets a lot of flack for. Totally. But I think both guys did tremendous selling here. Yamato was really focused. Shingo was uh, his typical bruiser self. Mm-hmm. He's really upset that Yamato is even in his position, so... There's um, a lot of dismissiveness and cockiness going on there. At one point, they do a superplex to the floor, mm-hmm. which is an insane. Uh, onto onto a bunch yeah. of other people. It's, it's not like, straight granted, to the floor. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm about to say, granted, there's a lot of other people there. Yes. But the fact they do a superplex to the floor. Yeah. Um, I love this because it's a really great way to end Shingo's reign. Now, granted, I yeah. wanted Shingo to win because I'm um, selfishly, I thought his reign was just amazing work. It was the best thing in Dragon Gate in a long time, yeah. It, it, it has really turned the promotion around in some ways. But if anyone was going to beat Shingo, it should have been Yamato. And it felt like a great end to tyranny in a way, where Shingo had held the belt for almost a year. And it felt like the right time and the right person in the right location. Yeah. And it felt like a big deal when Shingo lost. Which is definitely when you, was. When you, have, when you have a reign that is that impactful and long, you need it to end at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, it's uh, it's yeah. uh, it's one of the best things that I can say about this match is that like it does on some level feel huge and epic. Uh, at least if you're a big Dragon Gate fan like the two of us. If if you're not, it, it'll probably be lost on you for a variety of reasons. But it feels um, feels like a big moment. Right. So interesting. Like you had the Ada versus Santa Maria match uh-huh. on your list, and it's from the same show. So I guess is there a reason why this didn't make your list? I don't know. Like so, like I've just more and more been feeling like the sort of main event style, uh, the singles main event style in Dragon Gate has been weighing on me, and and I think that's true for um, a variety of Dragon Gate fans. It's not, I think, just related to me. Um, I like I like the tag teams more. You know, there there's more guys in it. There's more uh, variety in it. You can you can play with more personalities and styles with that sort of thing and a singles match sort of limits it in some ways so i guess my question is that i don't know it's starting to feel like um i guess like listening to your list and how things play out (laughs) sure that seems more like an issue with the big japanese main event style than it is directly dragon gate definitely it's not just dragon gate it's dragon gate it's new japan it's big japan it's all japan it's it's everything in japan and and that sort of thing because American wrestling has become so much more influenced by Japan, uh, Japanese wrestling in the last 30 years that bleeds to America as well. It's not it's not just Dragon Gate, yeah. All right, so what's your six? 
Uh, what is my six? I gotta scroll down after uh, all of this that I wrote about <laughs> a match we're gonna talk about later. Uh, my number six is a match that I know is somewhere here in your top ten. Uh, it's a really brutal match. It's Roosh versus L.A. Park. No, it wasn't in my top ten. I had it at. Um, oh, what? I don't remember that. I had it. Jeez, where did I have it at? Should I have it on my list? I know I had you it had it at thirty-eight. Weird. Okay. Um. So when. <sighs> When things get out of hand in wrestling, it's usually not pretty. Um, and it sure isn't pretty here, but I'll be damned if it's not, like, captivating. Like, this is just a car crash of a match. It's a train wreck in tights. These two men, like, collide with such ferocity that the promotion literally just, like, <laughs> washes their hands of it. And it's like, you guys do whatever the fuck you want. This isn't our shit anymore. <laughs> um reality takes hold in the midst of this like huge over the top performance escalating escalating it to like something even greater um and it's like maybe reality truly is stranger more outlandish more breathtaking than fiction because this is like two guys doing a shoot and it is so awesome it's not my favorite match but i doubt anyone will be able to find something as rebellious as rush versus park totally this is like the out, this is the definition of outlaw wrestling. Like, everything about this was a fuck you to the system. It's two gladiators in the most storied arena in Mexico uh-huh. sending the fans into a frenzy. You know, it's they're doing everything they are told not to do. Mm-hmm. It's a spectacle like none other. Like, you mentioned outlaw. It's Rush and Park abiding by their own rules. Mm-hmm. And it's a special thing to watch. Like I said, if this was someone's number one, I get it because there is nothing like this match yeah they get they get rained in like (laughs) the same amount of trash as they do money they both bleed a ton they both like uh they both clearly want to have like an apuestas match that i don't think actually happened it's 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 something crazy like wrestling like should be more like this sometimes i think (laughs) like it's something it's something really crazy and over the top i think it's hurt by the fact that uh, a very famous Lucha match that we'll talk about here in a bit uh, happened uh, about a month and a half after this and sort of eclipsed it. But for a while, this was like the best Lucha Libre match of the year for me. Yeah, for sure. And like, the thing about this is that the match like legitimately gets called off. Mm-hmm. And then Russian, Rush versus Russian Parker just standing in the ring, soaking in the, yeah. you know, adulation from the crowd and they just keep going at it yeah they go on for another like 15 minutes (laughs) a whole bunch of posturing and pandering that if you're not into like the macho Uh show offiness of lucha libre oh yeah that you won't like it yeah but it it really is like gladiators just like soaking in all of the (laughs) you know energy from the crowd it's masterful work from those two i think this is like one of the better examples recently i think of like the idea that wrestling is the least important part of wrestling because there's so little like quote unquote actual wrestling in this. There's like a couple dives and some brawling, but like the rest of it is grandstanding to the crowd and it's so much fun to watch. Well, you alluded to this match and my number six is Candice Lupus versus Trauma Primero from WMRG. I have it higher than you. That surprises me. All right. So you can go five then. Uh, number five is a match that you brought up a little while ago. It's Chris Hero, Gunnar Miller, Anthony Henry, and Jimmy Rave in the finals of the Scenic City Invitational. All right, let's talk about it. Um, I talked about a couple matches ago, Shingo and Yamato, and how it felt big. Um, and in wrestling, few things 
for me at least, uh, that are constructed to feel like dramatic and memorable leave me actually satisfied in the end. But this is a notable exception to that. Like this is built to be kind of big, like this big finals uh, four-way match. Um, and it's supposed to be also like kind of wild and free-flowing and fast and crazy. It, it Like this was like my favorite multi-main match of the year. And considering that I'm a huge Dragon Gate fan, that's really saying something. Um, but it draws me in. It makes me believe that like Chattanooga's favorite son might just have a chance to beat the best wrestler in the world. And it's like, I can see... I can see the seams in the fabric. I can see the wires holding the whole thing together. I know how the sausage is made, as it were. But, like, I don't mind. Like, I, I want to believe that Gunnar Miller can win, and he does. And it's awesome. The thing about this match is that there's, like, so many different stories going on. There's Jimmy uh-huh. Rave, who was um, the last year tournament winner. And besides that, he's kind of been the heel ace of, of Southern Wrestling, if you want to, mm-hmm. you know, either him or John Schuyler, really. Um, you have Gunnar Miller the guy that's being prepped to be the next big guy in the South, mm-hmm. Anthony Henry, who's actually in reality becoming the next big guy in the South. Totally. And who was defeated in the previous year by Jimmy Rave. Yeah. And then Chris Hero, who's the God of the tournament, mm-hmm. essentially. They're bringing in this, like I said, I keep referring to Hero as a mythological figure, but he is in this realm. <laughs> he, is, like, yeah. he is this man that's been in every single tournament on earth. And he comes here in this small Tennessee town, and he is going to win the tournament, too, because he's Chris fucking Hero. Mm-hmm. The way they break this down is really interesting, too, because they have, they have like, Chris Hero and um, Jimmy Rave team up, actually. Mm-hmm. They have them, like, on the same team, sort of, you know, tagging each other in and uh, working with each other. When I think in any other, any other promotion, they would have just had Hero and Rave fight each other. Sure. Here, Hero and Rave didn't even, you know, wrestle much mm-hmm. which is interesting um the way jimmy rave goes out really nice touch really great payback um, and payoff to um what happened last year and what's interesting about the scenic city invitation was that obviously it's a once a year thing mm-hmm. so the fact that there's a payoff to a year-long story here is absolutely incredible because they only have that one tournament to go off of they don't have like yeah. weekly tv or any other shows that they <laughs> run it was just the sei yeah so, Gunnar, Gunnar Miller eliminates Jimmy Rave with a small package. He's the first one to go. Pretty early, too. You know? And then Anthony Henry and Chris Hero tear it up, and Chris Hero catches him in an ungodly pile driver. <laughs> it's pretty gross. It's only made worse by the fact that Henry is kind of a tall guy, so yeah. it's, like, legitimately harder to do. And then Gunnar Miller and Chris Hero go at it, and the thing about Chris Hero that I love so much is that he can wrestle the biggest names in the world. He can wrestle mm. Jushin Thunder Liger. He can wrestle Zach. He can wrestle these guys that are huge names. Mm-hmm. But he can also wrestle these guys that aren't these big of names and shine them up so well to the point where they look like they belong in the ring with him. Totally. And that's what he does here with Gunnar Miller. Keep in mind, Gunnar Miller, by all accounts from people that were, that were there live, had a terrible first night. Yes. And he redeemed himself with the Joey Lynch match. But this fully redeemed him, where he's mm-hmm. in the ring with the best in the world, and he holds his own. Yeah. He looks fantastic. He destroys him with a pounce that looks ridiculous. Well, CTE pounce is the same thing, but... I'm not... I, I don't like that it's called the CTE. Yeah. Like, yeah. that feels like that's a little too real, you know? 
you know, like I get why it's called a CTE to be, like play off his football background. Yeah, but it's just yeah. I don't like too many guys have CTE to make yeah. that joke. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, but exactly. I think having Hero and Miller was the smart way to go because mm-hmm. Miller redeemed himself already against Rave. And now mm-hmm. he's proving himself against a legendary figure. So, an extremely well booked match with a ton of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's like long. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. It's great stuff. Yeah. So that was your five. That was my five. All right. So my five is Sami Zayn versus Shinsuke Nakamura from NXT Takeover Dallas. This was uh, another one of those well loved matches that I didn't have because I'm a super hipster. This match means a lot more to you if you care about the arc of Sami Zayn. Sure, definitely. This is Sami Zayn's swan song. We mentioned it with Bailey and Asuka. Um, this match is Sami Zayn um, almost getting a Lifetime Achievement Award for, <laughs> for what he did for NXT. I mean, Regal pretty much said as much when it was like, Sami Zayn wasn't on the TakeOver card. And it's like, I have a very special match for you, for all you've done for us. Yeah, then, that's, a, that's a good way to put it, really. And then Shinsuke Nakamura's video package comes up, and I remember Full Sail losing their minds for it. Yeah. So it's Sami Zayn, who is a guy that I pretty much view as the father of NXT. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that, he was the reason why NXT started getting buzzed. Sami Zayn mm-hmm. versus Cesaro, two or three falls, is the reason why people started paying attention to NXT as more than developmental. Are you telling me it wasn't all those bold Dempsey versus Baron Corbin matches? <laughs> but... Sami Zayn, NXT really is his baby. Uh huh. So to see him go out and see this other person come in, uh huh, was very interesting. And I'll be honest here, um, Shinsuke Nakamura's entrance here is uh, <laughs> it gave me chills, honestly. Yeah, I I remember uh, I mentioned it earlier. I was in York, Pennsylvania, putting on a show with some friends during this, and I didn't get to see this show live because of aforementioned shitty hotel Wi-Fi, but someone pulled it up on their phone at the show the next day, and we all gathered around, like 20 of us, trying to watch this entrance on this guy's phone, uh, and uh, we had a hell of a time watching this entrance for the first time. Yeah, that uh, gave me chills, and uh, it was um, something that felt surreal. You, you mentioned it in your article when you were talking about Shinsuke Nakamura and Tazawa both going to WWE, uh-huh. but seeing him actually in a WWE ring just doesn't feel real in Uh some ways. Granted, I have a lot of issues with Nakamura. Sure. And I've (laughs) been on record with that. But regardless of how I feel about the guy, the fact that he's even at this point is a lot to take in. And he's in this point facing a guy that I love and it's an all-time favorite like Sami Zayn. Mm -hmm. And the match itself is kind of cut from the same cloth as Nakamura versus Kota Ibushi from the 2013 G1. Okay, interesting. Show your work. Yes, but, you know, it's kind of similar. Like, Nakamura is pretty much dominating Sami Zayn. Mm-hmm. But Zayn has to, guess, dig down deep and get a little bit more violent than he typically would. Yeah. You know, you know the spot in Kodabushi versus Nakamura where uh, Kodabushi starts throwing the closed fist punches? Mm, yes. Okay, yeah. That's what, Nak- that's what Zayn starts doing. He starts, um, I guess, for lack of a better way to phrase it, because commentary was putting it over this way. He's like starting to embrace the strong style. And Yeah, which is kinda goofy, but that's that's how they phrase things. <laughs> yeah, you know. But it is, you know, Sami Zayn kinda adjusting how Nakamura works. Where Nakamura works a little st- stiffer and more snug than other guys he faced, Sami Zayn has to adjust to that. 
Mm. Um, I said the match itself isn't great. It's not like an amazing match itself. It's kind of basic. It's Nakamura doing all of his usual stuff and Sami Zayn bumping and selling extremely well for this guy to put him over. But it's a lot of the stuff that, you know, is going on around it and how much Mm. it means to me to see Sami Zayn, you know, Mm kind of go out this way. And this was, this was one of those matches that like nobody ever thought they were going to see. And it's special to see it. Yeah. And Sami Zayn post match, um, you know, the crowd saying thank you, Sammy, and all that stuff. You know, it happens a lot now. Yeah. But there's some times where it actually feels like it um, resonates with me. And for a guy that's, like, one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, it really means a lot to see him go out that way. Well, I'm glad it, I'm glad you did. I'm, I'm glad you were able to see it. And it's, it's a really sentimental thing. I wish it hit me more, but it hit a lot of people, and I'm glad to hear you talk uh, so much about it. All right, so what's your number four? My number four is uh, a very famous match that uh, one coward who chose not to show up on this podcast called the greatest match he'd ever seen. It's Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee from CWF Mid-Atlantic's End of an Era. Want to know something? Is Oh my god. I didn't think this was going to happen on our list. We Do we both have this at the same number? Yeah. <laughs> that is mind-blowing. I love that. Alright, so let's do it. <laughs> um... I don't know how to talk about this match, man. It's like, it's 105 minutes long, and, like, there's a lot to go through, you know? I guess I can start off, and then you can just chime in. Sure. Over you. Or wait, I don't know, we're already three hours into this podcast, do you want to, <laughs> do you want to take it move by move, and <laughs> another 105 minutes to it? <laughs> um, if there was ever a wrestling match that I would say resembles, like, a film or a play, Ah, it'd yes. be this one. Totally, sure. You know, this feels like um, there's legitimate acts. Like, Dustin Spencer uh, coined this, like, almost immediately after he saw this match live. And it is a match that's, like, broken into three distinct acts. Totally. The main story coming into this is that if Trevor Lee loses, he's gone from CWF forever. I didn't know that before I watched it, which added a lot of um, necessary context to why this match is the way it is. Yeah. So, going into this match... I think most of us were convinced that Trevor Lee was going to lose. Sure. You know, granted you saw this, you know, just like way um, after we saw this. Yeah, totally. But, you know, a lot of us were like, man, Trevor Lee has a lot going on. I think he's gone. Mm-hmm. And I, it would make sense. Like this guy who's, who's, who's getting big on the international scene, leaving his hometown promotion, you know? Yeah. And we totally bought that. And, you know, Trevor Lee, uh, it would have been emotional either way if Trevor Lee won or lost. But that kind of adds to it. And uh, it's the most incredible feat in wrestling this year. And for me, one of the most incredible feats in, like ever in wrestling. It's not just for the fact that it went like obscenely long by most wrestling standards. <laughs> yeah. But for the fact that over the course of 105 minutes, they managed to weave in the story. Mm. No, not just weave in the story, weave in the history of the promotion. While also shaping the future of CWF. That's an interesting note. Um, you enjoyed that aspect of it? Which aspect? The weaving. Uh, the, the, we- the weaving in of the promotion's history. Yeah, because it's something that um, we talk about with Dragon Gate, especially with the Dead or Alive match, or the oh. um, or the um, um, Gate, of, Gate of Destiny um, six-man tag. You know, with um, Tazawa yes. and Doi and Yoshino versus Yamato, Shingo, and Hulk, where you're weaving in legitimately like 10 years of lore. 
Hmm. And this is what this does because it's weaving in a whole bunch of things like um, Roy Wilkins using the ropes. Yes. It, be, it was a thing that Roy Wilkins did a whole bunch during his rise. And Trevor Lee uses the ropes here, you know, kind of, you know, little, th- little things here and there. Um, oh. Commentary on here is pointing out that this is like taking you a trip through the Mid-Atlantic. And it yes. starts off with the technical wrestling. And yeah. for 60 minutes, you know, People talk about how long it goes, but my God, the 60 minutes here, the first 60 minutes are fantastic wrestling. Yeah, very, very good. Yes. Yes, fantastic wrestling. It probably would have made my list just based on the 60 minutes because they did a lot of really neat and smart stuff here. It's, um, so, so they go through this, this, this portion of this match where they're sort of playing up to the history of, of the promotion first with, as you're saying, like this, this technical stuff that they're doing of like, uh, hearkening back to the seventies of mid Atlantic wrestling and sort of wrestling in general. And then they later on a couple minutes later do, um, a little bit more brawling out on the floor and Brad Stutz on commentary and make sure to mention that it's like, Oh, they've transitioned into the eighties. Yeah. Um, and I brought this up because it's like, I kind of thought this was really hokey. Um, and it didn't necessarily impede my enjoyment of the match, especially because it sort of gets dropped a couple minutes later. But I found it to be like, I don't know, there's a lot of there's a lot of weird questions of intent when you have a match this long. Like, why does a match need to go this long? What's what is like a kayfabe reason why it should go this long? Like um, things like that. And on top of that, like specifically trying to play up to a certain style or a certain period of time in wrestling, as I've talked about earlier, sometimes comes across to me as like really ham fisted and it sort of did here, but you bringing up the dragon gate thing is a very important note that I didn't consider at all. And it's, I don't know how to feel about it now that you've turned it on its head for me. You know, and this like the first 60 minutes is key here because it's like, it tells the story of Trevor Lee besting Roy every turn. Uh-huh. Roy is supposed to be the better technician, but Trevor dominates him there. And then Roy tries to change his game plan. He tries to outstrike Trevor, but Trevor Lee is a tremendous striker, so he picks Roy apart there. And this sets the tone that I thought was very clear throughout the throughout the match is that Roy Wilkins is like severely outclassed as a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Like throughout straight wrestling, he cannot even mess with Trevor Lee. Now this is the second act. It's when the overbooking comes in, and then the all stars mm-hmm. come out, and they put a beat down on Trevor Lee. And then the rest of the CWF locker room comes out. And to me, it was that Roy stood no chance if the All-Stars didn't come out. Uh-huh. That's how it felt to me. And it's like, I think they did well to uh, sow seeds of that early on uh, as Coach Gemini and, oh, he has another All-Star out there whose name Chappie. I'm forgetting. Chappie, yes. Uh, Coach Gemini and Chappie are out there with Roy Wilkins the whole time, and Chappie is interfering in the match within, like, the first five minutes, and Trevor Lee is, like, shutting him down every time he comes in. Um, So when these run-ins happen later, um, the fact that they've built up to it, as well as the fact that we give, we get, like, 105 minutes of great wrestling here, so it's not like we're getting cheated. I felt that the run-ins were great, but um, it's, it's interesting to note that, like, that Roy Wilkins, yeah, it's like another, it's another piece of evidence that like Wilkins couldn't win without this specific time limit and the uh, the All Stars coming in to save him. No, some people questioned, um, well, why did the rest of the CIF locker room come out so late? Sure. And I thought the commentary team did a tremendous job explaining why, and it's because that a lot of wrestlers don't stay, you know, 
if they're not booked or in the main mm-hmm. event. Sure. So they said a lot of those guys left. And when they come out, you know, Stutz is making sure to say that, you know, someone must have put a call in because these guys are coming in hot and ready to totally. fight. Totally. Trying to, trying to like save their friend from having to leave this promotion, trying to uphold justice in this big title match. And even not just that, because, you know, they actually continue stories here. They have mm-hmm. Nick mm-hmm. Richards come out and cut her Kamikaze Kid, yeah. which sets up their, you know, more of their matches in the future. They have Xyrus and Rick Converse and all these guys come out and interact. And now we get to the third act of the match where the all-stars are gone. Mm-hmm. And this one is filled with brutality. This is where <laughs> we almost get to like the almost gimmick match portion of it, where they bring in like steel chairs and a kendo stick and they use them in ways I've never seen before, honestly, where they um, put the kendo stick in the corner. Oh yeah. And like had it poking out. So like, I, I think I've seen that before, but the way they use it here is like really brutal. Yeah. And then the chairs where Trevor Lee takes like a, um, <laughs> take, he takes like the, he takes like the X plex on a, on the um, chairs where the legs are up. Yeah. It's, it's like two chairs. Uh, one's, you know, sat like a chair normally is, but the other one is folded up on top of it. So the legs are sticking upward. It's, you see it a lot in death matches and it's always bananas. <laughs> yeah. And then um, here, Roy Wilkins is the power driver. Or does a can yeah. destroyer? And then in yeah. CWF, the pile driver is a banned move. But because it's no DQ, Roy can do it. Mm-hmm. And Trevor Lee kicks out of it when that's what um Roy beat him with um at the show um Battle K twenty fifteen that I'm that had on my list earlier. So that's a great nod there. And then Trevor Lee does a curb stomp on a chair. Oh yeah. Uh it's funny, uh specifically Brad Stutz. It might have been Cecil Scott. I don't know. They were both great in this match. We, I think we need to oh, make we, sure that we, we will. Mention... We will at some point when I'm done with this. Um... Uh, but one of them mentions that like he had picked it up from Super Dragon in PWG, which I thought was yeah. funny. I actually liked that a lot, really. Yeah, yeah, it was a good, it was a good spot. And Trevor Lee winds up beating him with the move that become his death move, the STF. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And interesting thing about the finish is that. Coach Gemini tries to get in the ring and save Roy Wilkins. Mm-hmm. But who comes out and stops Coach Gemini from interfering? Brad Attitude. Brad Attitude, who would become the vein or the bane of Trevor Lee's existence for um, the last half of the year. Yes. And it's interesting that the STF was used when they made sure to point this out. This was Coach Gemini's old mm-hmm. finisher. And he's so doing he this beat finisher. His, he's beat, to his protege. He beat Coach Gemini's pupil with his own move. Uh-huh. There's a it's whole really... bunch to take in here. There's, you didn't even talk about like two of my favorite near falls in the whole thing. Um, before all the all-stars leave the ring, Trevor like, uh, gets a ton of fire and he fights oh back against God, all of them. Back, and man. <laughs> the comeback, it, it is so crazy. Gibsonville explodes. Brad Stutz nearly has a heart attack on commentary <laughs> and it's, it's so much fun to watch in the near fall. Um, Near fall that comes right after it, Trevor trapping Wilkins in a small package, uh, is, I swear to God, I've never seen a better near fall in wrestling. Like, I knew, I watched this about a year after it happened. I knew it went 105 minutes, and I knew we were only, like, 70 minutes in at this point. But when Trevor pulled Wilkins in for a small package, I, I thought that was the finish. And Coach Jim and I dives into the ring at the very last possible millisecond and breaks it up. And I, I it was... 
it was a transcendent experience. <laughs> and he does it later too with the small package driver. Yeah. And it's a little less effective, but it's it's still an incredible near fall. And you mentioned that, but man, this was uh the commentary here was amazing. And mm-hmm. I'll say this without a doubt, this is the strongest call I've ever heard in a wrestling match. Like these two are so key yeah, to the match. It- like resonating with people because if it's these like, two aren't here to tell mm-hmm. the story of why certain things are important totally this just doesn't hit on that same level yeah it's just a bunch of spots that don't make sense to someone who's not keyed in it was it was like intrinsically part of why i enjoyed this so yeah for me like this is you know this is the dead or alive cage match this is the gate of destiny main event like, <laughs> there yeah. is so much going on that if you just kind of drop in that you don't care about it. Mm-hmm. But if you have any plans on getting into CWF and caring about CWF history, this is in, this is a key moment. And mm-hmm. the reason why it is so high is that it is a moment that pretty much shaped the rest of CWF the year in 2016, where coming totally. out of this, everything um, was revolved around like what happened post 105 minutes. So, uh, how do you, how do you feel about the fact that it went 105 and like, these uber long matches in general. I don't have a problem with it as long as you fill the time well. Like that's, it's yeah, I guess yeah. Like for me, oh, some people said like, oh, could you could you have told the story in like um you know thirty minutes? I was like, no, I don't. Yeah, could have not not this specific story. Yeah, like, you know, like yeah. some stories, yeah, but for what they were trying to do, and it's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You can't tell that in 30 minutes. You can't tell that in 40. You maybe can't even tell that in 60 minutes. Yeah. This needed every bit of time that it got. And I feel like they used all of the time well, which is insane to say for a match that is 105 minutes. (laughs) It's like, I, like I, I feel weird about something going this long on purpose because it's like, it's weird. It's weird that like, it's very, it's very clearly excessive. uh But the problem is, is that, when it's not just a whole bunch of moves. Yes. That, you know, I had no problem with excess if, the, if there's a reason to it, I guess. Yes, totally. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure if there's like a ton of reason to it, but I think this is uh, well executed excess. Like in, in a certain way, I think this is the smartest dumb match I've ever seen. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I, it's like, this is straight up up there with some of my favorite, like Dragon Gate spot fest or like the best Kings road bomb fest or like, I don't. I don't even know what else. It's like this is this is great stuff. I love this. I don't think it's necessarily maybe the greatest match of all time, but it's it is so good. Would you say? I guess like making a match like this work is one of like the greatest feats. It's yeah. It's um. It is incredibly difficult to pull off something as well as they did here in twenty minutes, and the fact that they did it in an exponentially longer period of time from everyone from Trevor to Roy to coach Gemini to Cecil and Brad to the referee. Like there's multiple referees too. I even mentioned a referee bump in here. The second referee bump that I see, like the brother bumps better than most wrestlers I've seen, (laughs) but like, but everyone involved here, um, knocked it out of the park. And this is like, I was talking about earlier. It's, it kind of takes the magic out of, of like whatever medium you're watching to see, the process of creation, but like I would love to interview everyone involved here and pick their brains about what went into this before, during and after like this is, it's really interesting. Yeah. 
and that's uh, I I think that's the greatest that's the greatest compliment you can give a match is that it makes you think. All right. So what's your number three? My number three is uh, another match uh, in the Skillogy. It's my favorite one, though it's certainly not the most complete one. It's Zack Saber Jr. and Jonathan Gresham from Beyond Wrestling's Flesh. All right. So it, it didn't make my list, so you have to talk about it there. That is bananas to me. Did I mean, the first one? No, make like, your list? like the first two didn't make my list. Oh, the first two didn't. Okay, that's interesting. Um, well, as I said, it's less complete than the uh, the finale in the two out of three falls, but it's like far more visceral. Like these both both of these guys are like frustrated here, especially Zach. He's he's frustrated that he was like exposed in their previous bout, like this pretender to the throne of <laughs> the greatest technical wrestler in the world. Um, and he comes at my pick for the greatest technical wrestler with a whole lot of malice and Gresham responds in kind. And in, in most like in most high end technical wrestling matches, I think you're able to see exactly what both men are thinking every step of the way, like what they're processing, uh, what they're planning, how their game plans change in every single moment. But like in this match, these guys are just thinking about destroying one another. It's so mean. It's so brutal. Uh, I love it every step of the way. Yeah, this was um, if I'm honest, like, this is probably my uh, least favorite match of the three that they had. Really, really, okay. Yeah, but yeah, but it, I still think it's great. Like that's the thing is that sure, sure. All three of these matches I thought were very well done, and like this was, <laughs> this match was at least partly good enough to make you create this podcast series. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's that's high praise. Exactly. Then, <laughs> I think. Maybe might come down to the crowd. I don't think the crowd was as into it as they probably could have. And this a weird, that's true. And it's a weird um location they were in. They were in um uh, God, where were they in? Pretty sure it was in Melrose. Yeah, it was Melrose. And it was um part of the doubleheader with Evolve. So uh huh. Yeah. So again, the work is fantastic. It's just everything else surrounding it isn't like up to that level. Totally to, like, boost it up. Um, I understand that. Yeah. All right, so my this was like an opener too. It was kind of weird in that way. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was opening. It was like the second match on the show. I th- no, I think it was the first match. Oh, it was the opener. Yeah. Yeah, Beyond's Beyond's kind of weird that way, but I appreciate it. All right, so my number three is Trevor Lee versus Andrew Everett from Cedar from Atlantic. This one didn't make my list because I didn't get to see it. Sadly. Ah oh, man, that sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is above the Wilkins match. Because I feel like the Andrew Everett story uh, was a lot easier to understand. Okay, tell me about the big dog. <laughs> One of six. <laughs> One of so many. They should just start a stable, you know, the big dogs. <laughs> that'd be a really good stable, too. It would be just Everett, Chuchi <laughs> and Roman Reigns. Yeah, that's a, that's a good trio. <laughs> but Andrew Everett is a... This story isn't trying to prove himself because in a tag match that happened a few weeks before this, it was Trevor Lee and Andrew Everett versus Eric Royal and Ray Kandrak. Mm. And they lose, and that's because Andrew Everett kind of has to show off and do his uh, flips, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trevor Lee had the match won, that Andrew Everett just kind of just has to do too much. And Trevor Lee rips into him post-match. He was like, if you want to do gymnastics, there's a, re- there's a rec center down, down the street. Oh, shit. And... He just eviscerates Andrew Everett. And these two, who have known each other since they were kids, are now set up to have the biggest match they've ever had. Mm-hmm. And it's for the CWF Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight title. And it's um, at Absolute Justice, which is CWF's like, second biggest show of the year. 
And I think they told the story of Andrew Everett trying to prove himself as more than a flippy guy well. Uh-huh. It proves that he is not just a flippy guy, but he's actually a very sympathetic and easy to root for baby face. And Trevor Lee is picking him apart. We mentioned it in the Jesse Adler match, where Trevor Lee picking apart a young boy. Mm-hmm. Here he's picking apart someone that's around the same age as him. And he's making him look like a complete chump. Like he's kicking him in his leg, snapping his fingers, stepping on his stepping on his hands. He's destroying Everett, and Everett just won't stay down. He wants to be the best so badly. And Andrew, um, at one point, is bleeding. And it's great because um, you never really see... Uh, the blood used that much in CWF and when it's used it's impactful okay. and Trevor Lee does a penalty kick and they actually play it up like Trevor Lee's like shoelace cut Andrew Everett on, his, on the forehead or something yeah because that can happen yeah yeah and it's great stuff and Andrew Everett is uh, down the stretch trying to just string some stuff together and there's an insane spot that happens where they do a run off the top and Trevor Lee lands on his feet. And then that turns into Trevor Lee doing like that um like Spanish fly type move that he does. The the yeah, the reversal one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an absolutely insane near fall. You can see um during the match that Dustin Spencer gets up and starts clapping. <laughs> That's like good. he is losing his mind. And Andrew starts like hits a six thirty. He um doesn't get the victory, and he's like crying. No. He's like on his knees crying that he just can't get it done. He gets another one, you know, doesn't doesn't do it. And then that turns into Trevor Lee giving him the murder death kill. He, I thought you were gonna say he was gonna do a nine twenty then. <laughs> he does <laughs> he's the murder gonna up the rotation. <laughs> he does the murder death kill. He grabs him like he's about to do a half crab where they start stomping on his head. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. then he puts him in the S- and then he puts him in the STF, which actually turns into like a um, bully choke. Nice. And this is a brutal as hell finish. It's a fantastic story. And uh, while Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee uh, does so much, uh-huh. I think this would appeal to more people because I think it's a lot easier to take in. It's only like forty minutes, right? Yeah, only 40 minutes. <laughs> Still, yeah, that is quite long. Do you, I mean, do you think that honestly does add to it, the, the shorter length while still being rather lengthy? Um, I'm not saying the length adds to it. Like, like I said, like, the main thing to me is always how you use your time. Mm-hmm. And I thought Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee did that very well. Mm-hmm. This one very did it very well, too. But I was thinking from the standpoint that if I showed this to someone else, I think they would, you know, like it more than trying to deal with Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee and how okay. much they have going on there. And then the post-match, where the Brat Attitude angle really kicks off, um, the fans crowd the ring, and they're banging on the mat, chanting CWF. Nice. And Andrew Everett's just yelling, and he's so emotional and overcome with um, joy that they you know, came out and killed this match. And then Brad Attitude, he comes out with beers, He's like, you know, take out, take all this in, guys. You know, these guys mm-hmm. won't be here much longer. And then he, um, like, sick kicks um, Andrew Everett and uh, cracks a beer bottle over Trevor Lee's head. And all that joy and all that happiness that you just saw this great match 
gets immediately sucked out of the sportatorium because now we're immediately thrusted into a new story where Brad mm-hmm. Attitude is completely bitter that these two young guys are taking his spot. It's a uh, tremendous stuff. Like you mentioned, Jay Lethal versus Leo Rush being a great um, yeah. one-two punch in terms of a great match and a great post-match. This is um, on that same level, on that same level, if not better. That's that's always an interesting thing. Is that like you don't you don't see it enough in wrestling these days? I think it's like post match angles that really elevate an already great match because it's just it's hard to separate the two. And uh, yeah. it's it's I mean it's obviously something that shows up a lot in these in these top matches of ours. All right, so now we're in the top two. Top two. This is uh this is where it gets real. All right, so. Would you like to go first? What is your number two? Uh, my number two is a match you brought up earlier that I'm still astounded that I had higher than you. It's Canis Lupus versus Trauma Uno in a Luchas de Apuestas match from IWRG Zona 21 on... I actually I couldn't find a real date on this for a while. I think it's September 9th, but I saw conflicting information. Um, yeah, it should be. Some, it, it did take place sometime in September. Okay. I, I initially had, like, August written down, and I was like, I don't think that's right, and I had to check. Yeah, I think it's September, but, you know, let's talk about it. Um, this is... This is pro wrestling concentrated down into its most basic form. It's two men putting it all on the line. This is the story of, like, the son of a legend forging his own legacy. This is This is a story of pain and retribution, of, like, standing firm in the face of malice and treachery. This is the story of, like, the fork in the road of your life, of the path not taken. It's the story of the unknowable bond that you form with those that hurt you the most. It's it's an absolute spectacle of violence and determination, and it's... This is pro wrestling. This is, this is a match that reminded me why I'm a fan. The thing about this, and I guess I'll say why I didn't have it higher... It's because, so I had in the uh, top 10. Yeah, top 10. So take that as you may. It's like, uh, it's something I mentioned in other matches, like where um, Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens kind of led to nothing. Okay. This kind of led to nothing, too. Granted, Candice Lupus lost his mask. That is a big deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but after this, it's weird because like they have they have a title match after this. Mm-hmm. Where Candice Lewis is the babyface and the traumas are being like stooging, cheating Rudos. Yeah, and it's weird. It's like uh, weird for me to see how this played out, like Tell how me. they treated these guys afterwards. And it's like a very slight nitpick that annoys me. It's like why Sami Zayn versus Nakamura isn't higher, even though I have such a sentimental attachment to it. Yeah, the post match. I mean, the post like you know everything that happens kind of means nothing. Well, you you also brought it up with uh, Brian Kendrick versus Kota Ibushi, where you said that uh, Kendrick's involvement in this in the cruiserweight scene later on didn't necessarily hurt it for you. But I don't know; it's an interesting question about whether or not the follow up is going to affect the thing that came before it. And maybe some people can you know chime in and say if something that what happens after a match impacts how you view it later on, because you, you know essentially you know. Nakamura versus Zayn can be viewed as inconsequential in the canon uh-huh. of NXT because it happened. Sami Zayn left, Nakamura became champ, and then it's like, all right, like nothing was, uh, I guess, done afterwards that kind of played up to how important that match was. Totally, totally. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think we had a lot of narrative on top of wrestling, which is already a pretty narrative-driven uh, sport 
or entertainment form. Um, and sometimes I'm not sure if like we give proper things that are due sometimes that like maybe it does add more to what comes later. But at the same time, it's like, because this is people booking matches and booking angles, sometimes they don't put as much thought into it as we would like. Yeah. And the match itself, I love this match. The thing about mm-hmm. this is that um, um, Lupus picks up the first fall mm-hmm. using the same move that Trauma would win um, the match mm-hmm. with. El Pozo. Um, yes. And the third fall is a... I have a problem with people calling this a brawl, actually. Really? Because, like Some people call this a brawl, and I view this as more... You know, it's more um, Atlantis, Viano, Tessaro than it is... Uh, oh, oh, real quick. Um, do you say Tercera or do you say Viano 3? Because um, I, I, I was, I, I, I'm trying to use the proper name more often. Is it proper to say Primera, uh, uh, Segunda, and Tercera? Um, because I, I've, as far, I've as, far as, like, as far as like when I'm listening to three. when I'm listening to Spanish commentary, that's what they say. Huh, that's interesting. A friend of mine brought this up on a podcast in which he was calling this the match of the year, and he was calling uh, Trama Uno, Trama uh, Primera, and I was like. That's weird. I always thought it yeah. was Uno, but I'm not no, sure. No, that's um. If you listen to commentary, like say if you like watch a Viano match and they're like talking about um, Viano four, five, three, <laughs> yeah, that they're gonna say uh, uh, Tessero and all of those things. Interesting. I just I guess it's something that I've never heard or thought about until recently. Yeah, but this is um way more Atlantis versus Viano than it is like uh mm-hmm. black than a brawl. Top. It's like it's a would you say it's more of an apuestas match that way? That, like, a lot of apuestas matches are, are this court of, like, bloody spectacle of a thing? Yeah, it's like a bloody uh, spectacle that doesn't it doesn't become, like... the thing with, like, a lot of apuestas matches is that they get bloody early on. Uh-huh. You know, like, say, um, Dandy versus Satanico, or Sangre Chicana mm-hmm. versus MS Primero, mm-hmm. like, something like that. Is that it gets blood early on, so the baby face can fight from underneath. Yeah. This doesn't get the blood until the third fall. Yes. And that's why I think it's different there. It is it is it is noticeably a departure from the usual formula. Yeah, so that's why I think it's not exactly a brawl because it doesn't turn into that until the third fall. Okay. But the third fall <laughs> is excellent stuff. It's yeah. really visceral, violent, hateful wrestling mm-hmm. that you only get from an Apolistus match. Mm-hmm. It's almost like teeters on the edge of go of doing too much with the stretcher job. Do you think so? Like, I I don't know. This is one of those, like, few times in wrestling in which, uh, specifically because of the allure surrounding the Martinete Tombstone Piledriver, like, uh, and how it's such a protected but also banned move in Lucha Libre, I was, like, I kind of super bought into it. It's one of those yeah. things where, where it's, like, it's a really hokey and really ham-fisted sort of, um, sort of element to put into your wrestling. And in, like, another match, I'd probably hate it. But here, I just... I buy in, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you protect a move and you present it as like a death move, I have no problem with it. Like it's the same, mm-hmm. um, like it's a tropey thing. It gets done a lot. But like I had no problem with it in a Sasha Banks versus Charlotte match out of my list. Sure. So it like didn't bother me here either. I do think this is sort of a modern classic. And when we look back on this in a few years, it's going to become maybe one of the more um, fabled Apuestas uh, matches in Lucha history. I'm not sure if anyone else feels that way, but it's one of those matches where I, um, after I watched it, I know that a lot of hardcore Lucha fans, that's going to mm. be something they point to as a, that's what Lucha should be. 
Interestingly enough, I know a friend of the podcast, Dylan Hales, someone we think of fairly highly. Uh, he said he didn't think it held up on rewatch, but he wasn't sure how to explain why. And I'm not, I don't know. Like this is one of those matches that like, um, it was sort of like the Lucha fans in, uh, our circle of the internet, uh, sort of shamed everyone else into watching. And a lot of people got into, uh, despite not being normal Lucha Libre fans. And I'm not sure if it's going to hold up for them. I'm not, I, I don't know. This is, this is an interesting case. All right. So my number two is a match you mentioned earlier. Mm. Zack Sabre Jr. versus Jonathan Gresham from Beyond Wrestling, American Rana. American Rana, a two out of three falls match. Yes, and this is the match that I'm probably the most passionate about. Interesting, more so than your number one. Yeah, as far as, um, I guess, how strongly I feel about um, the feud itself. Okay, tell me about the feud. As if I didn't listen to a two-hour podcast of you talking about it already. As if I don't talk about this all the time in the Slack chat. <laughs> but the thing about this is that this is the culmination of Zack Sabre Jr. and Jonathan Gresham having a skillogy. And Jonathan Gresham has won two straight matches. Mm-hmm. And Zack Sabre Jr. is furious. Uh-huh. This man is angry and he feels like he has a point to prove. Yeah, and this match really captures why uh, I like Zach, I like Zack Saber Junior's character. It escalates in a way where the first match was playful and almost exhibition like. The second one was a little bit more intense, but not mm-hmm. quite as intense as this one is. Yeah, and Zack Saber Junior is nasty as well as Jonathan Gresham. They're like tangling up and doing simple things like a tie up in a very vicious way like at one point they are tied up so intensely that they fall out of the ring Mm -hmm. and it's little things like that where they're still doing their technical wrestling but it has a more it has more of an edge to it than it normally would Mm -hmm. and I think the thing here is that Jonathan Gresham is hanging with Zach and then Zach's kind of starting to fall apart he's not the same calm guy that he was before He's kind of desperate. He's angry. And it just gets to the point where this guy will pretty much do anything anything to win. He pretty much rakes the guy's eyes at one point when they're outside, showing you where his head is at during this. He is, like, uh, stepping on Gresham's neck and going after his neck viciously. At one point, Zach asked for a knockout. Like, he uh, stomps on his head, and then he points to the ref to count him down, like he wants a knockout victory instead. Yeah. You know, and that goes to Zach's, like, you know, show-offy nature, where instead of just, you know, taking the win, he needs to prove that he's better. And what better way mm-hmm. to prove that you're better than someone by knocking them out? This is a match about, like, pride. Like, these two guys are um, fighting almost for their sense of self. You know what I mean? Like, like Zach does believe he's the greatest technical wrestler in the world. And John Gresham does believe that he's the greatest technical wrestler in the world. Both of those things can't be true, and it sort of comes down to who wins this match to determine who's right in that. Yeah, something has to give. Yeah. And uh, something that gives is Jonathan Gresham's neck, because holy shit, his <laughs> ZSJ's neck work in this is really vicious. Besides the neck work, man... The thing that makes me think this is the best Zack Sabre Jr. performance ever is this guy goes all in selling that leg. Uh-huh. He, he, is, he gets his own leg work uh, worked over, and it's it's pretty good stuff. 
Yeah, Gresham going after his leg. Um, he's really great at it. Gresham usually does the dick tap. He does like the fake and then the um, tap. This yeah. time he actually hit him in his leg. Yeah. And it's a, a great subtle thing that happened in this match where a lot of subtle things did happen. Um, the yeah, way... this is like even more so than like Wilkins versus Lee. I think this is the smartest match of the year. Yeah. This and um, the way they do this from the fall, you know, in the first fall is uh, one of the most creative finishes I can recall in a while, especially in the context of a two or three falls match. Uh-huh. Because usually like a double pin finish would happen during the end of a match. Because that's like the screw job finish to set up more. Uh-huh. This, they do it in the middle of the two or three falls match, which is actually an interesting placement. And yes. the way they get there is very interesting. Yes. And after that, you know, when Zach realizes that Gresham caught him again, these two just go, these two just start going at it even more intense than they were before. Mm-hmm. And the finish here is great because it plays off the leg work that Gresham already did. Uh, he makes... Zach set out with a figure four leg lock. And the thing about that is that Zach, earlier in the match, had got out the figure four by slapping Gresham across the face hard as hell. Yeah, like right in the ear. It's, yes. it's, rough, it's rough stuff. And then Gresham puts it back on later, and Zach is doing the same slapping, trying to get him off, and then Gresham this time isn't letting go. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of nastiness in this match, a whole bunch of nasty head drops, and... <gasps> God, this... <laughs> Yeah, this is such great stuff. <laughs> there's there's a lot to love here. It goes fairly long. It's this nice big main event that feels huge. Um, I I, I really I, I kind of want to refer uh, return to that uh, double pinfall. Like it's such an interesting thing because it's one I've never seen before. Usually in a double pinfall, it's like there's like a double clothesline yeah. or one guy hits like a super kick and falls over the the other. So that they're both sort of like yeah, the Shawn laying Michaels. on each other. Yeah. The Shawn Michaels. But this is like, um, Zach's got a European clutch on and Gresham grabs him in a double chicken wing and brings his shoulders back as well. So that they're both just pinned down and it's so interesting and different. And I really liked it. <laughs> and then two months later, Zach and Champa do the same exact thing in mm. their two out of three false match, and which that match is sucks. <laughs> endlessly hilarious to me. That it's just like the same thing ripped off entirely in a far inferior match. And Zach's character work is the thing that I think really brings this match together because he's the guy that Definitely. got pushed further and further to the brink. And I've compared Zach to Jumbo Saruta in some ways where. Yeah. If like, like Jumbo is emotionless to an extent, but he's only as emotionless as the situation he's in. Yes. He gets rightfully angry and upset and fired up and passionate when he has uh-huh. a reason to be. Uh-huh. And I think that person is the most interesting because what gets them to that point is uh just being disrespected, having their pride get in the way. Mm. And the Zack Sabre Jr. character is so prideful that he just couldn't stand the fact that mm. someone thought they were a better technical wrestler than him. And, and proved it. And proved it, too. When he was sort of a crybaby afterwards, like, Zack um, didn't shake Gresham's hand at first, but then he comes back out and hugs him, and, you know, Zack is still visibly upset. Mm-hmm. But it's a great moment for Gresham, and in a way where there was a match that was literally billed for the title of Ace of Beyond, 
mm. this match felt like it was actually the match much bigger. That, yeah, this match felt like it was actually Gresham being being crowned Ace of Beyond. Definitely, definitely. How did you feel about um the fact that Gresham won three straight in this skillogy? I think the fact that they had him win essentially three straight and keep it competitive is an amazing thing. Yeah, it's like, I think in just about any other situation, this happens, I don't want to say a lot in WWE, but it happens in WWE sometimes, and I feel that it's really lazy. But here, it's it's it, it, because Gresham's such an underdog, both naturally and in this kayfabe setting of being a world-class talent who isn't recognized that way, and taking it to someone who is widely renowned as the best technical wrestler in the world, like it, it really works on multiple levels. And it's, it's an interesting booking thing, and it plays out in the ring in a really fun way. You know, how often can you say that Zack Sabre Jr., you know, losing three straight matches, and he still came into this match as the favorite? Totally. Like, yeah, like I wasn't, I didn't know how this was going to go. Like this skillogy every, every step of the way was like, really up in the air for me and it's it's amazing how it played out and it's so it's so endlessly enjoyable to watch like every step of the way yeah so we should get to our number ones now i guess yeah i guess i guess so (laughs) (laughs) um do you want to go first or should i like this is because i i know what each one of these are you know yeah and i I think anyone listening and anyone who knows us fairly well knows what these number ones are (laughs) All right, so I'll say mine and you can say yours. Okay. So my number one is Kenny Omega versus Tetsuya Naito from the G1 Climax. And mm-hmm. yours is? Is Mako Satomura versus Aja Kong from Sendai Girls on April the 8th. So two drastically different matches. Very different. Uh, they, neither they, one of these are on each other's lists. Oh, it is on my list. <laughs> oh, it's on your list? I didn't know that. I, yeah. I guess I forgot you bringing it up. I probably was, like, super shocked by it, too. And I just forgot, yeah. because I forget things. Yeah, oh, but, um, I mean, I guess the only similarity Wait, is... Wait, then, shit, is... I'm gonna check real quick. I think maybe... I think I'm making first night on major list. But, like, Holy shit, low. it is. Yeah, like, super <laughs> I, was su- I was super wrong. Yeah, I was at 84. So, um, I guess you should go first, then? Yeah, hang on. Let me get back to that now. Um, so, this is... This is a sort of match that is not going to hit everyone the same way that it hit me for a variety of reasons. Uh, first of which is that like these are just wrestlers that I love. Like Mako Senamore, I've brought it up a lot, I think is is one of the greats in professional wrestling and is someone who I find um, so enjoyable to watch at every stage of her career and is probably the greatest female wrestler ever. And I think Aja Kong is the only person who can even... like. Uh, approach her in that list and they're both like just stellar performers and I've watched them feud for like 20 years almost now and to see uh, to see them in this late stage in their career in which Sadamura is um, pretty much in her prime and Aja Kong is like in the twilight of her years watching them go at it for not the last time because they actually had a match after this in 2016 but for one of the last times and in probably their biggest and best match. It's, it's something really emotional for me. Um, at one point in this match, like there's a fleet of young girls in the crowd who start chanting for the two of them. And it's not your regular, like wrestling chanting. It's not, um, 
I don't know. It's I don't speak Japanese, so I'm not sure if I can give a whole lot more context to it. But it sounds like the sort of thing you'd hear in like a football match. It's the sort of thing that that people chant to uh, to to che- to cheer people on and to fire them up to perform better. And in this situation, like watching these like goddesses of the ring go at it in one of their biggest and best best matches after all these years of feuding against each other. It like it hits me in such an impactful and emotional way. Like these women basically singing for their heroes. Like it, I don't know. I I love to watch these women fight against each other and fight against time. And it's something that like really strikes at the central core of why I love wrestling. The thing about this is that if you just watch this and just want to see Aja Kong and Michael Sadamora beat the shit out of each other, you get that. Mm-hmm, you get a lot of that. <laughs> But like you said, if you care about the fact that they've been intertwined and feuding with each other for so long, uh-huh. and that every time they face each other, they go out there and try to just throw every <laughs> single bomb possible. Yeah. You know, well, go watch a match from 2001 that they had or mm-hmm. a match before that. Like, they just continue to face each other and they keep getting better, essentially. It's just mm-hmm. a match where at first, Maiko, when she was young, was trying to prove herself. Yeah. Against Aja, who was the established force. Was the best in the world, yeah. And then Maiko, as time goes on, gets herself to that level. And yeah. Aja is starting to age. But, you know, Aja is still great, even to this day. Yeah, and she's she can like certainly bring it. And there's like little flashes in here, especially in, in Sadamora's Selling, where she looks like the little young rookie girl that she used to be. But she rallies against this woman who has been fighting her for her entire career and she puts her down. So it's a tremendous story that doesn't really get played up too much during the match. Mm. But if you watch it while knowing that these two are pretty much career rivals, Mm -hmm. then it means so much more to you. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, um, I, I know other people who call this the best match of the year and they're, they're not necessarily people who, always think alike with me but they're like-minded people but i also know i also know people that i really love and respect who thought that this didn't even belong in the top 100 (laughs) but it's it's something that's really special to me and these are our like individual top 100 matches and that's what we watch wrestling for you know it's the it's the thing that really um it's the things that strike our own heartstrings and mine is kenny omega versus naito and uh (laughs) This match for me, you know, really means a lot because Mm -hmm. I'm a big Kenny Omega guy. I think the world of this guy. I think Mm -hmm. I've thought the world of him for a few years now. And this was the semifinal, essentially, of the G1. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of New Japan main event style. (laughs) There's a lot of excess and bomb throwing. But... Even though it's a match where these two had no backstory, I felt like they did such a good job doing little things that mm-hmm. it almost like blows me away. It's like, it's kind of amazing that a heel versus heel match in New Japan came across this well. You know, like the last time he pretty much got a heel versus heel match of two um, different unit leaders facing each other was AJ Styles versus Minoru Suzuki from 2014. Mm-hmm. Which was, like, probably one of the best matches of the year that year, yeah. Yeah, and that's a fantastic match, but this is taken to a whole other scale, because mm-hmm. L.I.J. 
is much hotter than Suzuki Goon. Mm-hmm. And Kenny Omega, as the leader of Bullet Club, gives a new wrinkle that Bullet Club really hadn't had yet. Yeah. And it's I don't, it's a heel versus heel match, but they actually like shift seamlessly into making one of the guys the de facto babyface. Mm-hmm. It's true. Where Tetsuya Naito, you know, starts working over Kenny Omega's leg, and even though Kenny Omega was like doing disrespectful stuff, like spitting on Naito, slapping him, I forgot about the spit. <laughs> yeah, he spat on him a few times, and for some reason, it still manages to, you know, they still manage to turn Kenny Omega into a sympathetic character. Uh-huh. And I think Kenny Omega did a fantastic job selling his leg. Naito is excellent here, but mm-hmm. obviously, because Kenny Omega is the guy. Um, in peril, in danger, he was going to be the main focus. And I thought, up until this point, it was his best performance in New Japan. Because it was, um, I thought it was Kenny Omega doing all the things that made people fall in love with him years ago. Yeah. It's this animated guy, you know, who is actually a very good fundamental wrestler mm. and doing things like selling. Like did bumping, you, uh, like did you talk, did you talk to Parv about that? I mean, I did actually. <laughs> when okay. he was talking about the Omega vs. Okada match, like this guy does a lot of fend- like fundamental things. I mean, he's okay. flashy, sure. Doesn't mean he hasn't ever done you know basic stuff. Yeah, it's not like he can't throw a punch. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's not like he can't do these things. And I love his selling. The thing about Kenny Omega when he sells is that I think that he adds some flavor to it. Like some people mm. just want straightforward selling, and I mm. understand that. But when I talked about Will Ospreay and how he would, like, you know, find ways to work around losing a limb and create new ways of offense, Kenny Omega does that same thing here. Where, like, he'll go for his um, Finley Roll Moonsault, and he can't do it because his leg is messed up. Or he'll go for the One-Winged Angel, and he can't lift Naito up because his leg hurts so much. Or when he does the, kind of like, knee neckbreaker. Oh, yeah. He hurts his knee out of desperation because he was trying to find a way to just, you know, hurt Naito and he wasn't hurting his knee in the process. And this match takes a turn when they get to the outside and Omega does the powerbomb on the apron and Kenny Omega does this insane dive into the crowd. Mm. And it just hits me a lot because Kenny Omega, up until this point, hadn't done anything like that in New Japan. Mm -hmm. This was a guy that was you know, extremely motivated to go out there and up until this point, the best match of his life. He wanted to go out there and steal the show. And if you read, if you read any of the, um, recent, uh, interviews or anything like that about this match that Kenny Omega talked about, he said that he wanted to go out there and have the best match and that Naito was actually apprehensive about what they could do. Of course he was. (laughs) Yeah. Naito just like, tranquilo brother. (laughs) (laughs) Like not even that, like Naito, he said Naito was nervous. Yeah. And it just, you know, goes how much I admire Kenny Omega that this guy, this foreigner is telling you, look, we're going to go out there, we're going to have the best match ever. Mm. And I think something about Omega's confidence really shines through here. The vision that he has for wrestling. And then the closing stretch here is absolutely insane. Uh, yeah. Tetsuya Naito hits the best Destino that there will ever be. <laughs> <laughs> he, tra- he he gets out of the one-winged angel and turns it into a Destino where Kenny Omega takes it all on the uh, top of his head. Yeah. I love I love the Destino. It's such an awesome move. I've um 
I, I didn't like Naito so much as a he or as a face, but like I always liked his move set. I think that the Gloria and the Destino are both like such cool looking moves. I love the Gloria. I wish he did it more often. Totally. But uh, Kenny Omega kicks out of the Destino, and again, it's a thing where because I never thought I would see Kenny Omega at this point, mm-hmm. it blows me away. Keep in mind, I'm watching this unspoiled. I didn't get to watch oh, yeah. it live, but I'm watching it unspoiled. Yeah, I had to watch it live and review it, which was, yeah. in hindsight, a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just, like, losing my mind because I'm like, Kenny Omega might actually do this. Yeah. And Kenny Omega winds up winning with the one-winged angel. Mm-hmm. The finishing stretch, I love everything about this match so much. But I guess what hits for me is that I never thought I'd see a Kenny Omega at this point. Totally. I thought this guy was a world you know, world caliber talent, you know, for years. And then seeing him kind of do an historic, do a a historic thing and have a historic weekend, essentially, where this bled right into his match with Goto. Mm -hmm. And then the run he goes on afterwards, he made Mm -hmm. a match Wrestle Kingdom. This was the match for me that solidified that Kenny Omega is a great talent. And other people may have seen that, you know, when he was in PWG, when he was in Ring of Honor, mm-hmm. when he was in DDT. Ring of Honor. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but this felt like a... The Tanahashi match was him, you know, being established as a heavyweight. Yeah. This match was him being established as a star. Mm, that's a good way to put it. And, you know... I don't know. I know, you, I know that you said this um thing about having an issue with Kenny Omega as a, you know, this, like, super villain. Um... Well, I guess, I guess you'll, I guess I'll let you elaborate before um, I sure. respond. Uh, well, I feel like I should be sure to mention that uh, I used to really love Kenny Omega. You mentioned him in like DDT and PWG. He used to like no joke be one of my favorite wrestlers in the world. Um, someone I'd probably put on the higher end of my top five uh, because he was just so much fun to watch. Like he just was crisp and did cool moves and was kind of a nerd. And I appreciated that in, you know, in promotions like PWG and DDT, but like sort of multiple things happened. I got older and my, um, my views on wrestling changed a little bit. Um, and as he slowly started to join new Japan, which is a promotion that like I have sort of a, um, a real strict idea of what I'd like it to be. Um, whether it be like, classic 80s stuff or the 90s three musketeers style or anokiism in the early 2000s uh i have like kind of an idea of what i'd want to see this promotion that means a lot to me what i'd want it to be like and then he comes up this guy who is going so much more over the top than he's ever been before <laughs> see, that's and, the, see that's the thing is that when i went back and watched pwg and then mm. you mentioned him being the supervillain, it's like well I go back and watch Men of Low Moral Fiber and totally. his promos there and how he's interacting with Generico and uh-huh. his matches with Danielson and Davey Richards. It's like... Those are good matches. I don't think he's that much different. I'm looking yeah, at him not... and he's like, he's, this t- he's like the same tongue-in-cheek villain there. You're not the only person to share that specific sentiment with me. And I'm not sure if it's just something that I feel that I think he's so much more over the top. But like, it hits me in such a way... Um, where he's on top of this promotion that I have a strong emotional connection to, but one that becomes increasingly something that I don't like to see. And it just, it rubs me the wrong way. It's like, say, um, I don't know, like I love ROH a lot and there's a lot of classic ROH that has 
a strong a strong connection with me and my understanding of wrestling but to see it today is is kind of like sad in some ways and it's it might be the bee's knees for other people but for me it's like it's kind of a bummer so i guess the question is then is it more of an issue you have with the direction new japan took more than more than a kenny omega issue because i think if you went yeah. back and watched this stuff I mean, I watched it, like the Men of Little More Fiber thing. They mm. are the same tongue-in-cheek villains with video game references. He's another. <laughs> he's the same tongue-in-cheek villain that's referencing Final Fantasy and things like that here. So Maybe it's, it's like, just that I I hate the Terminator gimmick. Maybe that's all it is. He's like, he's like referencing Terminator and Final <laughs> Fantasy, but in the Men of Little More Fiber, he's referencing um, yeah. Street Fighter and Monkey Island. Yeah, he's doing like the Hadouken and shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe it's just I need to go back and watch those kind of things and sort of put it in perspective, which I haven't done in uh, quite a while. Um, but to answer your question, I don't know if it is just if it's specifically him or if it's specifically, you know, New Japan and Bushi Road and Kidani and Gato. And um, I don't know. It's like a combination of all these factors. And I think I'm just too in the moment to really get a clear look at it. But other than... um. I guess me thinking the match itself is great. I think what it led to. Mm. to the yeah, fact how, does, me, how does this compare to the Dome show for you? This match, at first I thought this was the best King Omega match I've ever seen. And then he then he tops it at the Dome show. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, like, I didn't expect that. Yeah. I, that and, Dome show And I know you don't like that match. So it's like, you know. It's not, it's not that I don't like it. It's just like. Does it embody it's, what it's, your problem is, what, what your problems are with New Japan? Yeah, not not more so than other matches. Interestingly enough, like I think there are worse matches in so that. The question is: It like does it frustrate you more because it is Kenny Omega, a guy that you used to really like? I think that's certainly part of it. Is that as opposed to with someone like AJ Styles, who I've never had a strong emotional connection to, this is a guy who I used to like and who like. I, I don't think he changed too much, but I certainly changed, and it's weird. It's weird to see like. It's weird to see like a former best friend of yours do big important things and you're like, Oh man, I used to used to be friends with you and now I'm not and this feels odd. I mean, I think this would be a real um thing that maybe you should write about is mm. go back and watch Kenny Omega's PWG and DDT work. And sure. Then come back and watch some New Japan stuff and think about is this guy really that much different or is it just me and how much so, maybe, and how much and how much maybe um Yeah. I don't know. You've caught, you've like you've like referenced yourself as a hipster, and like <laughs> yeah, I mean you have, but it's like, is it like is it you being not not upset or bitter that a band got too big, but that they're not playing, but that but, but yeah, they're maybe. not but they're um maybe signed to a label and playing different songs <laughs> that you you know aren't as familiar <laughs> with you don't have the same connection for. Yeah, I don't know. Like I I I, I try to stay as self-aware as I can be regarding those sort of things. But like, maybe there is some of that, you know, it's, it, it's hard to tell. That's, that takes a lot of like inward looking that just honestly takes time that you can't yeah. just like immediately recognize for what it is sometimes. Yeah. But I think I, I like, I like the fact that after recording for six hours on this podcast, you're telling me to go watch more stuff and write about it. <laughs> <laughs> you're giving me homework. I mean, because I think, you know, for like all the other things that you have planned as like as far as mm -hmm. writing goes, mm -hmm. I think this is more of an interesting case study of, you know, a fan. Sure. Where I really would like to know if would you like if you come out of this thinking, Did I change? Did Kenny yeah. Omega change? 
what actually happened here. Totally, totally. And I think just the aftermath of this match where Kenny Omega winds up to become a huge star, mm. even bigger than I ever expected. And it's something that means a lot to me coming, you know, seeing what happened at Wrestle Kingdom 11, how mm. much of a stir that caused. And uh, this this match really is the um, start of Kenny Omega's rise to megastardom. Would it break your heart if he went to WWE? Yeah, it would. And yeah, I don't that's... say that, and I don't say that a lot about a lot of things. You know, mm-hmm. usually, you know, if someone wants to go make money in WWE, go do it. Do what's yeah. best for you. But Kenny Omega has a chance to do unprecedented stuff. Mm, yeah, and it would break my heart. Like he already did it at Wrestle Kingdom 11. Yeah, he has a chance to you know be the face of New Japan, trying to expand to the United States. He has the mm-hmm. chance to be the most successful. Um, foreigner they've ever had there like yeah I would love to see all of that play out because I think the guy deserves the world and he's this guy that's carved out his own niche and mm-hmm. made his own lane and did things that no one else could have done mm. you know this guy took chances that no one else I don't think would have ever took this yeah, guy like this like it's um it's interesting like I've, I've watched Kenny for years obviously but like it's interesting to hear him talk about making it on the Canadian indie scene and like driving through the frozen lakes in the way fucking Northern part of Canada to like go wrestle at uh, uh native American or native Canadian, I guess <laughs> native American <laughs> reservations, like listening to him talk about how he had to like struggle through that shit. And now a year or so after that uh, shoot interview came out to see him in the Tokyo dome main event, it's, it's kind of nice. I don't love the guy anymore, but I can be proud of him for that. You know, the fact that, you know, he even went to DDT and even that wasn't, wasn't meant to turn out the way it yeah. did. He main evented Budokan, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's a handful of people who can say that. He wasn't even supposed to come back to DDT. Uh-huh. Like if you it's... hear him tell the story, he was just supposed to have, he's, he was just supposed to have his one-off match with Kota Ibushi and then leave. Yeah. But then because of fan demand, DDT had to bring him back in and he became a regular there. Mm-hmm. It's, his story is incredible, and, you know... It is. I'm happy that this guy made it to where he is now. Mm-hmm. In this match, more than anything, he had the Kota Ibushi match. He had other matches that got people's um, eyes on him. But this was the match that really prepped him for stardom, I thought. Uh-huh. But, um, that's it there. That is our top 100 matches, and Brock... <sighs> we're not actually dead yet. Uh, I wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it because King Omega vs. Naito is my number one? <laughs> nah, it's... Uh, I actually, for a moment, I thought that that wasn't going to be your number one. I thought you were going to pull a switcheroo on me and put uh, Zach and, and Gresham in number one. I'm really you know, passionate about both those matches, but it's like in different mm-hmm. ways. Like This is... They're great matches. This was a pretty pretty damn good year in wrestling. So, um, anything that you were surprised about on my list or... Anything, um, I guess, that you you know feel like um, you should have had higher or anything like that? Oh, yeah. There's always... I, I mentioned it when we started. There's always stuff I miss out on. I wish I had more Lucha. I wish I had more CWF Mid-Atlantic. I wish I had more UK Indies. Like, there's, there's so much wrestling out there, and we are so blessed to have all of this wrestling at our fingertips, and it's it's daunting that there's literally too much to watch. But um, it's it's kind of reassuring at the same time. And I think 2017 has already um, been a year where we're kind of spoiled 
already. Mm. You know, we already had Wrestle Kingdom. We're mm. getting um, the Royal Rumble coming up and Evolve Weekend and all that. Um, Rev Pro High Stakes just came out today. Yep. Some good luchas already happened. Like, you know, it's 2017 and we're already spoiled. So <laughs> I don't know what a top 100 list is going to look like by the time we're doing this the same time next year. So Dear God. <laughs> all right, All right, Brock. Any plugs you need to get out the way? I just, you know, I, I say it at the end of every SES, keep watching wrestling, do what you can to help your fellow man. Stop supporting capitalism, you fucking pigs. I'm um, <laughs> <laughs> <I>, Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, just, we all love wrestling. Try to be kind to the other people who like it. Realize that there's more that unites us than separates us. Uh, and punch Nazis in the face as often as you can. <laughs> And you can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. And you can follow me at not Brock Yankee. That's spelled N-O-T-B-R-O-C-K-J-A-H-N-K-E. And there will be another Psychology is Dead. This is like an unplanned Psychology what? is Dead special. What? Are you <laughs> Are you telling me that I have to come back and record more of this? No, 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 no. Calm down, calm down. Oh, okay. You're not coming back and like to at least, though. Five months down the line. Yeah. <laughs> is, you, need, you, need to, you need to take a break. <laughs> are are the three podcasts that we recorded here longer than the other Psychology is Dead podcast combined? I may have to check. It may rival the <laughs> it may rival the top fifty with Timothy. Comes oh I haven't listened to that. I need to get around to that. <laughs> but um yeah, that's it. The next psychology is dead. I'm gonna keep that as a bit of a surprise. Okay. At first at first this was gonna be the art of delayed selling but mm. schedules got messed up there so who knows what the next one is but thank you all for listening to this overly long expounding of matches <laughs> that happened a year ago uh-huh. thank you all for listening hope you all here next time my feelings just can't disguise the way in which I fell into your heart was never what I Lately my skulls kept Dividing lines deep set and paved Two parts to wonder fruit The part and several desires to pursue And the soul chose To cause the tide to enforce the fire Oh, no.
Thank you.